This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hey guys, it's Brock here. Wanted to pop in and apologize for some audio problems that Quentin and I had recording this episode, most of which were due to my less than stellar internet connection here in rural Indiana. We've cleaned up most of it, but there's a couple of times throughout the podcast where my call would cut out for a few seconds, so you'll hear me pop back in here to explain what I was saying in those moments. Hope you enjoy the show. Too many things I'd rather do different. Woke up in a cold sweat, my emotions creeping. Three o'clock on the weekend, might as well sleep in. Stay down for the going. She hit me with the what ifs and the what wins and the what thens. Wonder where my life went, living in the moment. I've been thinking all my time spent. Are the bills paid? Does it make a break? Will I find a way? Have my feelings changed? Will I be okay? I don't know. But will I do nothing? Like, don't make sense. If you can't pay rent, so I place my bed. What got you shook on this Saturday? I take my L and I hold my place. I split my L and I go away. You left a spell on my Saturday. What got you shook on this Saturday? It is January 6, 2018, and this is part two of the four-parter, top 120 matches of uh, seven, um, 2017 special. I am Quentin Moody, Brock. We went three hours yesterday. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know how we managed to do that on the first part. But I'm imagining we're doing the same thing tonight or even longer. Well, we, I mean, yesterday we were talking about some stuff before the podcast, or well, before we actually got to our list, I mean, and afterwards we got into a, a big heated discussion about Jordan Devlin. So, I mean, it was all over the place. And if uh, if anyone hasn't heard that already, I urge you to go back and find the first episode of this list. Uh, mainly so Brock feels better about talking about Jordan Devlin. <laughs> or I can get more shit from it. <laughs> All right, so no messing around. Brock, you ready to get right into it? Ready, ready. All right, sweet. I'm going to go with my number 90 first. My number 90 is Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kota Ibushi from the G1 Climax. Did not have this one. All right, do you like this match? It was okay. I, I, I think I enjoyed it more than their first match in the 2015 G1 Climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one, this one comes in a point in Hiroshi Tanahashi's history in which he's very injured. So I think that probably uh, meant that I didn't like it as much as I could have. Right, so I liked their 2015 G1 match quite a bit. I understand mm-hmm. people didn't like it. But I think where this match succeeds is that they play with elements of that 2015 match. Mm-hmm. But it goes with Kota Ibushi actually being able to come up with the victory over Tanahashi mm-hmm. this time and overcome the legwork as opposed to Tanahashi doing it Kodabushi not selling it as well people would have wanted to and then Tanahashi eventually coming up with the victory um, this older more refined Kodabushi who has this um, new nasty streak with that um, I, I don't know what the name of that knee is but I think it uh, translates to knee of the god I think it is Kamagoye yeah and I think it translates to knee of the god and uh even if the last ride power bomb couldn't work or anything else, Kodabushi had that new trick up his sleeve mm-hmm. and it allowed him to get the victory over Tanahashi. Uh, I like the leg work. Um, I think Kodabushi sells it fine. I understand why people don't like the way he sells the leg, but, uh, you know, this works for me. I like the action a lot. And I just think in general, these two have like a really great chemistry where opposed to Tanahashi he wants to stick to the basics and Kodabushi can be flashy, but he has this nastiness and, 
crispness to a, to a strike that Tanahashi isn't too used to dealing with. So mm-hmm. I think it adds to their matches. I think it was nice to see Tan or not Tanahashi. I think it was nice to see Kodobushi in New Japan as himself again too. Uh, that was something I I noticed a lot throughout the tournament. And I've never like I've never been a a big Abushi fan, but but seeing him come back and do so well in the tournament was was a really cool thing. Uh, yeah, that's gonna, definitely going to be something that gets touched on later with a different match. But mm-hmm. just cool about how cool it was to see him back. But uh, butcher number ninety. My number ninety is a lucha libre match. One of only a couple on my list. It is Wotan taking on Demus three six. From January the fourteenth. Alright, I saw this, thought it was really fun, but didn't crack my list. Uh well it cracked mine because it has a whole lot of blood, and that's all you need that to get on my list. In it, who's the best wrestler on the planet. I really do like Wotan. <laughs> you you didn't introduce me to Wotan, but like you showed me one Wotan list that or one Wotan match that we're gonna talk about way later on our lists. Uh and it just like renewed this fire in me <laughs> for this <laughs> for this little hardcore dude, and I watched a whole bunch of his matches and I enjoyed many of of them this being one of the finest um the estrellas del ring video of this begins with wotan kicking like a shitty plastic chair like the worst kind of plastic folding chair you can get <laughs> kicking it directly into damus's head with like a disconcerting amount of force and like that's really it really sets the tone for is the it, whole is match. it like that gallon this this mcmahon or it's not that rough okay it's not like copious bleeding from the top of the that, head that image has haunted me by the way <laughs> i'm sorry i posted it it was really it's really bad <laughs> but um they surprisingly don't have a whole lot to work with here. I guess it's not surprising. It's the Lucha Indies. Like you can take, you take what you can get there, but, uh, all they have are these plastic folding chairs and they get a lot out of them. Uh, most notably, Damus gets busted open real bad. And there's a point in this match where he's, um, he's down on all fours, I think. And he looks over to a photographer at ringside to like sort of pose for the, for the shot. And in doing so, he turns towards the camera that's filming him and seeing this little gremlin, this little juggalo gremlin covered in blood is horrifying. <laughs> like it is, he bleeds so much here and it's, it's delightful. Um, they do a lot with the chairs. There's like this funny little, Arm drop, or arm drop, elbow drop. That uh, arm drop, <laughs> arm drop. <laughs> it's, it's like a big clothesline to the ground, I guess. Um, uh, Demus does this big endearing elbow drop at one point when he can't get like this uh, rudimentary table made out of chairs to break after backdropping Wotan through it, and it's just it's a whole bunch of fun. It's I really like. Lucha indie death matches and Lucha indie hardcore matches, and this was this was a real good one. All right, so my number eighty nine is Will Ospreay versus Jay White from ROH World of the Worlds. You made sure that I saw this one, and surprise, surprise, didn't do much for me. I don't think I made sure you saw. It. I think what happened is I came home and I saw Brady going crazy over this match. Mm, I do recall that, yeah. And everybody else, I guess, hadn't seen the pay-per-view, so they're, like, shitting on Brady. Because <laughs> nobody else was watching, was paying to watch ROH Live. Right. Nobody. So, <laughs> right. So no one else was watching the show. And Brady's going crazy saying how good um, Will Ospreay versus Jay White was. And was like, shut the fuck up, Brady. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, I, but, I, but I watched the show, and I get to this match, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Brady was actually right for once. Mm. Um, This match is, like, I don't want to, like... Make it sound like it's hyperbole, but like mm-hmm. Will Osprey and Jay White is the kind of match that you would like 
that you want out of Ring of Honor when you think of two young guys going out there making a name for themselves. Totally. It felt like a throwback to like the what, what, what some people call the golden days of Ring of Honor when just these two guys go out there, give it everything they have, and the crowd gives them their full appreciation, their full attention, action-packed. It's a 13-minute sprint. Will Ospreay has... One of his best performances of the year, which is saying a lot, considering how much mm-hmm. I liked the 2017. This was Jay White's coming out party in a lot of ways. This was easily the best match he had on his excursion. Um, well, Osprey had a knack for this this year. In Ring of Honor, facing guys and just having this highlight of being like the best guy on the show. Mm-hmm. Whether it be on pay-per-views, house shows, whenever you gave Will Ospreay a singles match, this guy delivered. And even if he wasn't a champion, he wasn't in TV title contention, tag title, world title contention even. You just give him a showcase match, give him 13, 15 minutes, and he'll give you something good. And the Jay White match in front of this hot crowd was definitely something I enjoyed a lot. Uh, it featured this ridiculous brain buster on the apron that Jay White gave Osprey. That's right. I was trying to think of, like, there was something in this that I liked, and I didn't review it, so I couldn't check that. That's what it was. Yeah, a ridiculous brain buster on the apron that Jay White gave Osprey. Um,. There's a whole bunch of action here, really fun, and one of the few matches in our relation in the last few years where it feels like the young guys are actually given an opportunity to go up there and steal the show when they did it. Totally. I hear that. All right, so you're 89. <clears throat> My number 89 is a match that I know you didn't see because we talked about this show last time. It is Minoru Suzuki taking on Rocky Kawamura in the Kaki Ride Show, Masahiro Kakihara's produce show from uh, August. All right, talk to me about it. Uh, so this is the day after the G1 Climax Finals. And as you can imagine, Minoru Suzuki comes out of that show pissed off. Uh, he didn't do nearly so well in the tournament as he would like. And he is consistently a super evil <laughs> hombre. Uh, so he comes to this one looking to put a hurting to, uh, the current like Pancrase president, I think. Uh, and a current Pancrase, I believe, flyweight, current champion in Pancrase at the very least. Um, this is, uh, a UWFI rules show. So everyone's, you know, basing off of a point system. And after Suzuki comes to realize that he can't really strike or like outstrike Rocky as well as he'd like, and he can't necessarily out wrestle Rocky as well as he's as well as he'd like. Um, he just starts cheating. He starts like stomping all over him, starts headbutting him, starts biting him, starts uh, poking him in the eyes. And he loses a whole bunch of points to the point that he is down to one point and Rocky gets this really good body shot in on him. And it looks like Rocky's actually just going to win this whole match by that. But, uh, Suzuki survives it and comes back and takes advantage of Rocky taking too long to connect with a hook. Uh, and he grabs his arm, yanks him down with a Fujiwara arm bar, a really gross one and gets a flash victory. And it's just a, it's a really well done little shoot match, uh, between one of my favorite guys ever and someone who I, I really do like Rocky Kawamura a lot. He doesn't do pro wrestling all that often. He's still mostly a shoot guy, but, uh, whenever he, uh, wanders his way into the squared circle. I really enjoy him. What do you like more between ambition and cocky ride? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, I have, I think I only have one ambition match above this and it's like significantly far above this. And this was the best match on this show. Um, 
Overall, I got to say ambition. Like they're both going to make it onto like my show of the year list. Uh, they were both just like super breezy, super enjoyable, very one note, but I can, you know, like sometimes when it's a specific sort of thing, I can overlook that. Um, but ambition had like, Ambition had like an emotional connection right. on a couple different levels, especially with a guy I love a lot in Timothy Thatcher. And I think that's what it puts, well, that's what puts it over the top. All right. So my number 88 is a match that I already know how you feel about it. So this is going to be fun. Okay. Matt Riddle versus Anthony Henry versus Kurt Stallion versus Joey Lynch, the Scenic City Invitational 2017 finals. Um, <laughs> this, this was not the worst match I saw in 2017. Uh, I, pr- there's probably, I don't know. There's at the very least one above it. Uh, <laughs> but it is no exaggeration to say that this match is on the list. Um, I get it. I really yeah. do. Um, but I think I kind of like the honesty of it and that it's just four guys going out there and beating the shit out of each other. Like, there's, yeah, I get that. Like there's no like pretense that this is going to be some match filled with callback spots and everything that made the SCI final like last year, what mm-hmm. it was, this was pretty something much. that, something that made it onto what it was like my number five match of the year last year. Mm, and like in my top 15, top 10, we, we both loved it. Right. So like, it's not that. But there is no, like, there's no, um, I guess, lollygagging of what they're actually here to do. They're here to beat the shit out of each other, kick each other, chop each other, and just have an all-out slugfest between two, I mean, four tough guys. Um, I think if this was the way that you were going to have Matt Riddle win an SCI, I mean, I think this probably was the best way to go about it. Sure. You know, just have him go out there and have a real hard-nosed match with three other guys that can go out there and hit with him. So... I get why. Um, may not appeal to you. There was some Canadian Destroyer, Super Indie stuff going on towards some. the end. A lot. A lot. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of that going on towards the end. But I think because it only happens during the final two, it doesn't really bother me too much. Um, I think for the rest of that match, I think Kurt Stallion is a guy that I didn't really connect with as a wrestler um, for the most part since I've seen him. But I think SEI... I think made me understand him somewhat, and especially this match, that he just is a heavy-handed, no-nonsense mm. guy who can really throw out of the chop. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't much appreciate Kurt Stallion uh, either, but he came into that match with a concussion, and while I don't like the fact that he continued to wrestle on it, he did surprisingly well in that match despite the situation. Yeah, you almost forget that he has a concussion. Totally. Um, but yeah, I just enjoyed four guys being the shadow of each other. It's kind of like me ranking the um, Fortune Dream Tag from last year. Like, sure, yeah, yeah. Like, I get why people don't like it, but I like the honesty in the situation. I mean, it's it's a surprisingly similar match to that in that it's got a million chops and it's almost entirely strike based. It's just like that was overindulgent in a very specific Japanese sense, whereas this is very overindulgent in a modern American sense that I'm less I'm less privy to. Right. But that's in there. What's your 87? Uh, 88. 88's uh, a match I'm certain you have a whole lot higher. It's Zach Sabert Jr. taking on Walter in PWG's All-Star Weekend. Uh, yeah, I got it higher, but not like as high as you probably think it is. Okay. Um. All right. My number 87 is a match you may have higher than me. It is Jimmy's versus Berserk from Dragon Gate Dangerous Gate. Um, this didn't make my list. All right. So... Hmm, I'm curious now. Why did it not make your list? It. 
Why don't, I'm going to pull up my review. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it? All right. So for context, for any, this match doesn't need context. Um, the Jimmies were the longest running stable in Toriumon Dragon Gate system history. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they started in 2011, maybe 2010. I think it's 2011. 2011, and it was um sort of a rib on on Kagatora and Susumu Yokosuka. Uh, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy. So they're called Jimmy's, J-I-M-M-Y-Z. Jimmy is a term. J-I-M-I is a term in Japanese meaning dull or boring, and it was it was is a rib on these guys who were considered like too too uh, not colorful enough for any of the other units in the promotion at the time. And they were like cast away by all these units and they sort of banded together in their mutual boringness and became huge fan favorites. Yeah. And then over time, um, guys like, uh, Kanda, Genki Horiguchi, uh, K-Ness and other people, um, Ray Saito got involved in the unit and they become the most beloved unit in Renegade history. Probably. I mean, there's a reason why they lasted this long. Yeah. They're up there. So, this is a unit disbanded match against Berserk, who has already had a very strong track record of disbanding units at this point. Mm-hmm. They've disbanded Dia Hart and they disbanded Monster Express. So this was just another um unit for them to take apart. Um the interesting thing about this match, i like I'll get into like the ring work in a bit, but T Hawk is the one that scores the final fall on Susumu, who's the last um Jimmy standing. And I really enjoyed that, considering the fact that Shingo um, was like really now trying to get phased out as a leader of what was then called Berserk uh, in the in the unit in the unit disband match between Berserk, uh, Dia Hearts, and Monster Express in February of 20, uh, 2016. Uh, Yamato and Doi were the ones that got the final fall. Shingo got the final fall in the Monster Express one. Tihaw gets it here, so I like the different story going on there. Uh, can you pull up your review? Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm curious, as someone that is like a really long time, long time Dragon Gate fan, why didn't this resonate with you to make your list? It was, uh, I don't know. I think a big part of it is that the crowd was not all that into it for a very specific reason. In that, um, for some, <laughs> God knows why, but for some reason, Shingo Takaki was like, oh, this match is going to have barbed wire in it. Um, and Dragon Gate. Oh yeah, let's like clarify. Let's give more context to this. Like, think of the guy who was on this weird FMW kick. Yeah, literally. Actually, didn't he? I'm pretty sure he had an FMW match. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so yeah, like he, maybe so he, maybe, he, maybe he, it he just stems from that. Yeah, he would no, but it's just weird that like they added that into this match. Yeah, totally. For something like the Jimmys being disbanded, it feels kind of unnecessary to have this. Well, in, in, so the Jimmies had also been more aggressive over the summer, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is something that plays into heavily here. Uh, and they come into this match wearing like full body camo in various different colors and, and their own. Paint. Yeah, war paint is, is a good way to describe it. Um, but the thing is like, Dragon Gate does not do hardcore. Mm-hmm. Uh, during, there's not a lot of bleeding in Dragon Gate history. Like, it's a very rare thing. Uh, and they've cultivated an audience over the last, like, what, 12 years now? Seven years? Or 13 years now? Um, cultivated an audience that is there for 
you know, the pretty looking guys doing pretty spots and they're not necessarily there for blood or hardcore or aggression all that much. Uh, and so they come into this match that sort of by necessity needs a little bit of that grit. Um, and they do it fairly well, like not nearly so much as like, I'm a big deathmatch guy, you know, you know, I want something a little bit harder right. and they do, they do okay here for a bunch of guys who don't do it very often, but the crowd's not very into it. It, um, I don't know. It didn't connect with me as emotionally as I thought it would, despite the fact that like two years ago, uh, a Jimmy's, a Jimmy's unit disband match was like an emotional overhaul for me as well as you. We, we both love that Jimmy's versus, uh, Mad Blanky unit disband match from 2015. I don't know. There was, there was something missing here for this one. You know, and I, think, I think, I think really it is the crowd. It, yeah. The crowd is definitely not as invested as you would have thought. And it doesn't really hit the crowd. Until like the actual like final two between D Hawk and Susamu. When it's have, when have, it's mostly a Dragon Gate sort of match mm-hmm. by the end. Who yeah. do have who do have a history of having fantastic chemistry. So that, yeah. like I understood that. But honestly, not having Kagatora in this match probably hurt too. Sure, totally. Like he's really good and he's better than a couple of guys on his team. Not so not like, having him. Not there. even being better. It's like he was one of the OG Jimmies. Him and like Kagator oh, and Susumu. Totally. Yeah. Like, like he's the reason that they wear like glasses and shit. Yeah. Yeah. So like, not, I feel like not having Kagator and I get it. He had a brave title defense on the show, but uh-huh. you could have easily done without a brave title defense when something like the Jimmies disbanding is happening. So yeah. Like, I think that hurt it in some respects, but yeah, I totally get it. I think the crowd not being as invested as you would have hoped, um, definitely hurts it. Um, kind of being a just basic, it, not, that's, not exciting plunder brawl. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it feels like an, it feels like a sort of mid-tier FMW match instead of like a high-end Dragon Gate unit disbands match, which is like the most emotional match in wrestling for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that the post-match, um, with Genki and Susumu, um, cutting their promo and crying towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think that boosted up for me a little bit, but I totally understand where you're coming from on the match itself. Uh, what's your 87? My 87 is another Dragon Gate match. Uh, not sure how you're coming down on it. It's Big R Shimizu versus Takehiro Yamamura from February the 2nd. Barely missed my list. Oh, wow. Okay. So this one, this is the match that really kicked off, uh, a really great year for Takehiro Yamamura. Um, and a pretty good year for Big R Shimizu too, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I watched this like seven months after the fact or some shit. Um, after I kept like harassing you like, hey, talking to you like, more is really fucking good, man. <laughs> yeah, I was just watching other things, whatever. Um, and Dragon Gate had been having like a real downer year. So by the time that I actually got around to catching up with stuff, I had had this match built up for me for a long time. And I expected, you know, thinking within the Dragon Gate house style, like this was going to be, um, a really good little sprint. What instead I got was a methodical, uh, 20 minute time limit draw. And I was like, whoa. Um, Takiyori, I remember at this point, it's like, what, 18 months into wrestling? Yeah, maybe a little bit longer. Like a year and a half, maybe. Like, not, not even two years. Um, 
And Bigar Shimizu doesn't have a ton more experience, only like four years of experience, but it's four years of like hard living in Dragon Gate. Uh, and he's been built up into this, this big monster dude, uh, who has tons of skill and has the most protected move in the company. So it's like Yamamura, this little twig of a guy, uh, has his work cut out for him. And he approaches this match with that in mind, uh, keeps it fast, keeps it light, uh, tries to use some technical, uh, Maneuvers that Big R Shimizu can't really combat being such a large guy. And Big R just tries to like bounce him around a bunch. Um, whenever Yamamura does try to get into a striking battle with Big R, it goes poorly for him, but he shows a lot of fire. Um, and that's really just the story of this match is that two young guys like show what they're made of in a match that slowly escalates over 20 minutes. And it's, it's really good. Uh, it's one of those matches that I, uh, I think we talked about it last year with like the, um, big rookies versus veterans match at the, a uh, match at Cork. And, but one of those matches that I feel like, all right, we're going to look back, we're going to look back on this, especially since this might be the unfortunate end of Takahiro Yamamura's career. Yeah. So the fact that he had such a strong 2017 is going to be one of the bigger what ifs for wrestling going in the, in the next few years. Uh-huh. Hopefully he can just live a, decent life a healthy life if he comes back to wrestling that's great but just hopefully yeah he's not he's not like he's not like hospitalized or Mm -hmm. anything like he's just he's not in a position in which he can probably ever wrestle again sadly yeah um all right so my number 86 a match you might have higher than me zach sieber jr versus kota ibushi from the g1 climax i do have this significant amount higher that's interesting all right what's your 86 my 86 is a match, uh, I'm not even sure you saw it because I don't think you watched this tournament. It's Candice LeRae taking on Shayna Baszler in the Mae Young Classic. I watched three episodes and after that I just did not bother finishing it. Okay, so this comes pretty late. I think there's a quarterfinal match, yeah. Uh, so this comes pretty late and Shayna by this point has been established as like the big bad of the tournament. Um, and Candace, like, bless her heart, just does not have what it takes to stand up to her. This is a uh, sort of, uh, the same sort of match that I mentioned earlier, Penelope Ford versus Sheena Baszler in Beyond Wrestling. Um, in this one, Candace shows a lot more heart and a lot more fire. Uh, she gets some good offense in. Uh, it's a speedy little match and she uses that to her advantage, uh, flying all over the place, hitting moves that are not like, they're sloppy, but I wouldn't describe them as sloppy because she, she pulls them off and like, she does it in such a way that it doesn't come across as unpolished, but rather, um, just like wild. Yeah. Like she's like, just, go ahead. Yeah. Things have always thought about Candace LeRae's offense. Like it's not always pretty, but just it looks dangerous and it works. Yeah. For her. Like she's just barely pulling it off. Mm-hmm. It's, it really works well with her character and it works well here. Um, she gets a couple of, uh, submission moves in on, Shayna, a much larger opponent, but she she just doesn't have it, and so she goes up to the top and goes for a move, but Shayna meets her up there, and Candice, I forget what she does, she tries to drag Shayna off with like an arm drag or something, and Shayna comes with her and traps her uh, in a sleeper hold on the way down, and Candice just has no chance. She can't escape. She She's not going to last long if she if she stays in this move, and she just taps out immediately. And it's it's like four minutes long, but it, it rules. It just doesn't let up, and it, it tells a cool story, and I really dig it. All right. So my 85 is Kento Miyahara versus the Bodyguard from All Japan, February 26th. Uh, I mentioned it on the first part of this podcast. Didn't watch any All Japan in 2017. Kind of regret that now. Uh, at the time, I wasn't so unhappy about it. <laughs> um, 
So Kento Miyahara and the bodyguard. Uh, excuse the title, me. <laughs> the bodyguard. All right. Thank you for correctly pronouncing that. Um, so this match happened on the um, show with the finals of the junior um, tournament oh, okay. that they had going on. Finals of that show. Uh, a B show, you could say. Yeah, B show. Um, finals of that tournament were you know, Iwamoto, I think, versus Aoki. Or it might have been someone else. But yeah, Probably. either way, they're, either way, really fun tournament. Um, so the ma- this match happening... Theoretically, isn't that big of a deal? It's kind of like Trevor Lee versus Chip Day happening on the Cronodal, on the Cronodal Cup shows. So, what makes this different is that this show was in Osaka. And if you know anything about the bodyguard, the bodyguard, um, got his start being an Osaka pro guy. Mm-hmm. So, this crowd is molten hot for the bodyguard, which is insane to say, but <laughs> you have to hear this crowd. And Kento Miyahara, um, a lot of his biggest flaws are that he has a very clear, distinct formula. And what Kento Miyahara does here, hearing how hot the crowd is for bodyguard, is Kento Miyahara works on top. Oh, okay. He doesn't chain, he doesn't like stay, like try to force himself working his baby phase comeback style. He works on top, talks to the crowd a little bit more. Um, unless the bodyguard, um, pretty much take the shine when the comeback, when the, when the comeback needs to start up down the stretch, there's a whole bunch of awesome, believable near falls with the crowd jumping out of their seats and believing that the bodyguard can pull it off. Uh, the bodyguard isn't a great wrestler. Like there's no, <laughs> he's an older guy, like a uh, former bodybuilder. I'm pretty sure just a mm-hmm. big dude, not like think more of like an eighties roided out dude than a modern wrestler. Mm-hmm. So like that, even by those standards, I don't think he's great either. Sure. So, like on paper, you wouldn't think he has this caliber of a singles match in him, but it's fucking great. Kento Miyahara does his damnedest to get this match to the level it needs to be. The crowd elevates it a lot and bodyguard brings it to a game. So even if you haven't seen the all Japan this year, Brock, I would, uh, this was what I did want to see. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really, really fun match. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if for some people it was like top 10 because the crowd for it really does help a lot. I I have seen it that high. Yeah, totally. Uh, You're 85. My number 85 is a match. I'm sure you didn't see. It's a Danny Havoc taking on Alex Cologne in Danny Havoc's retirement match known as a Vikings funeral death match. What show was this on? This was a CCW's down with the sickness. Okay. Yeah. I didn't see that. So, um, you had to know which show it was to know you didn't see it. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> did yeah. you watch a Danny Havoc match in 2017? Pretty sure I did. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Whatever. Um, I mentioned it before. I'm sure at some point, probably on our deathmatch podcast. Um, but Danny Havoc was like my first favorite wrestler. Like I got into wrestling right at the tail end of 2007. And not long after that, I started looking around in independent wrestling, found CZW and I found Danny Havoc, uh, right in the middle of the best run of his career. Um, he immediately just latched onto him like a young Midwestern guy, a guy from like a tiny little farm town with uh, weird hair and baggy pants and piercings and a Duran Duran theme song. Like he, he was a guy for me. Um, he had a different style from most deathmatch wrestlers at the time. Was one of those guys who like led the charge in the changing of how American deathmatches were approached as the aughts bled into the 2010s. Um, and his career sort of waxed and waned over the years, but like he was always, always a guy who meant a whole lot to me, even as I moved away towards other wrestlers. Um, 
And so when 2017 rolls around and he clearly cannot put on the sorts of matches that he wants to put on and he's not putting on the sorts of matches that fans want him to put on, he announces his retirement and announces it's going to be against Alex Cologne, which is maybe a surprise for people who aren't totally familiar with the deathmatch scene, like you would think it'd be a bigger name. But it actually works really well here in that um, – Cologne is one of Havoc's like two or three biggest career rivals, especially the biggest one of the last couple of years. Um, and they have a wonderful build to this, uh, based on just like mail in promos, like promos they cut at home and sent in. Cologne is a guy who only gets brought in a couple times a year in CZW after being moderately a big deal a couple years ago. Um, basically just as like big tournament shows these days. And he's like legitimately very angry about that. And, cuts this promo saying like i'm gonna take out this czw legend i'm gonna like end this man's career so that i'm not just like a guy who gets brought in a couple times a couple times a year to bleed and uh it plays off like some legitimate animosity and it doesn't it doesn't feel like a oh we're shooting brother uh we're doing this for the boys in the back like it's it's a real thing and danny's like i want to I want to face somebody who's going to bring 2017 havoc out of me. I'm going to bring the old me back. And, and I have to do that with someone who like, I sort of don't like, and it's, it was a really cool build. Um, on top of all of that, this is the last CZW show in the Flyers skate zone, mm. which was, which was the, uh, which is the venue they ran after leaving the ECW arena, um, which really heralds like this big changing of the tide. Like this, this, um, 2017 was a weird year for American death matches with a whole bunch of like retirements or clearly upcoming retirements. And, um, CZW changing venues was a big part of that. And this match was a big part of that. Um, then the match itself is like, just a really good death match, like the best death match these two have had in a very long time. This is probably Cologne's best match. Uh, they bleed a whole bunch, whole bunch of glass, a whole bunch of barbed wire. Um, at one point they bring out light tubes, which have always been banned in the flyer skate zone. And it's, it's a really like to see them use it in a building that I know they're not supposed to use it in on the last night that they're there is like this really awesome. Fuck you. This like salting the earth on your last night alive sort of feeling. And it really appeals to me. Um, to, to a bunch of spots, uh, Cologne hits like this running DVD off of the ring through an exploding table. And it's a shitty little explosion, but the idea of the spot is really cool. Uh, eventually, sets up this what i described in my review as a glass nightmare <laughs> it's a it's a pair of glass panes with Sounds delightful <laughs> it's delightful a pair of glass panes strung up between two chairs with a um, three or four bundles of light tubes sandwiched between them, like glass on glass on glass, and it's it's a it's a fucking nightmare. And uh, they do a Spanish fly off of a ladder through that for the finish. Um, and afterwards, everyone's clapping. They have a big retirement ceremony for Danny. He cuts a short little promo just saying, uh, "Thank you for letting me do what I wanted to do with my life." And it's and it's just a it's a nice little thing to see to see my first favorite wrestler go out the way that he wanted to go out. Mm-hmm. And I always like Danny Havoc when um the glimpses I saw of him. Obviously, not as familiar with him as you, but I always really thought Danny Havoc was one of the most like gifted guys. Uh-huh. That U.S. De- U.S. Deathmatch scene. So to hear him, so here it sounded like he went out on a pretty high note as possible here. 
All right, so my number 84. Match I'm not sure how you feel about. Kenny Omega versus Tomohiro Ishii for New Japan Pro Wrestling, Wrestling Dantaku. I did not have one Kenny Omega match in my top 200, Quentin. Oh, that's weird to say. I was thinking maybe you would have the Minoru Suzuki match. Uh, well, no, that's... I had some big problems with the Suzuki match. I did enjoy it overall, but it didn't make the list. All right, so... um. This is coming off the heels of their match in the New Japan Cup. Mm-hmm. That I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. Ishii won there. And now Kenny Omega, after picking up a couple of falls on Ishii um, on the Road 2 shows, now has a singles match with them. And look, uh, this is two of the best offensive wrestlers in the world going out mm-hmm. there and just hitting each other with bombs and great-looking offense, great chops, a hot crowd. um Finisher stealing. There's a whole thing going on here that I really enjoy. Callbacks to their New Japan Cup match. And something I really loved about the little mini program between Ishii and Omega is the way Ishii sold the one-winged angel was like he needed to be carted out, stretchered mm-hmm. out, carried out because the one-winged angel is that dangerous and that deadly of a move. <laughs> yeah, he's like a he's like a small little guy, so like it does hit him. He's a small and stocky guy, so like he takes it especially hard. Yeah, so I love the way that they were building the one-winged angel and how hard it was for Ishii to even stand after taking it. Mm-hmm. Omega wins the match, and it's um, the match he needs to get back into contention to face Okada at Dominion. But I really love this match. Action-packed. Um, I think it was about 22 minutes, something like that. But it's super fun. Um, it's not a whole bunch of selling. There's not a whole bunch of uh, real story there. Mm-hmm. But if you just want to watch something and just watch guys throw bombs and high-impact moves, and this is the match for you. This is the match where they do a... Um Dragon Suplex off the apron through a table, right? No, that's the G1 special shows. Oh, wait, wait, which one was this? This was Wrestling Nataku. Oh, okay, I, co- I completely... Yeah, this was this was one you said. Okay, my bad, my bad. Yeah, um, but you're 84. My 84 is a match that some people might have... Um, well, okay, no, let me rephrase that. Some people would be angry that I have it this low, uh, because I know a lot of people really loved it. It's, uh, AJ Styles taking on John Cena for the WWE Championship at the Royal Rumble. I have this a little bit higher. Okay, we'll talk about it in a bit then, and we'll move on to 83, which you might have higher. It's, uh, Zack Sabre Jr. taking on a very injured Jack Sexsmith in the Progress Strong Style 16 tournament. Uh, I broke my heart, but it didn't make my list, but I'm glad we oh, talked about it. Well, I don't necessarily blame you. It's barely even a match. No, um, no, but what people might say something I have on my list is barely even a match, too, so. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it's a lot of, <laughs> look, so it's a, match, it's a match to me. I understand. Um, so the story of this one is the night before Sexsmith faced one Zach Gibson in the opening round of this tournament had a very emotional match that we're going to talk about at great length later. Um, and he barely won that and he comes into this match and he makes his entrance and he's got his arm all wrapped up in a sling. Oh, I think, I think we should point out first that Jack Sexsmith is the first one out. And he cussed his promo, and he comes mm-hmm. up with this sling. You can tell he's like smiling, but he kind of has like a tear in his eye that he knows he can't like yeah. do what he wants to. Yeah. And then this Zach Sieber, then Zach Sieber Jr. comes out, and it's not like the kind of cocky Zach that we usually get. He's like, "All right, come on, dude!" Like, 
Zach is very uncomfortable through this match as Sexsmith has uh, what he describes as a, a hyperextended elbow and a tearing bicep. Um, and despite all that, he wants to actually have this match. And Zach is clearly not okay with it. Um, he doesn't necessarily know how to approach this match, tries to do a little bit of chaining, but there's only so much you can do with a man who has one arm. Sexsmith really tries to take it to him, and, and uh, he gets the best of Zach in a couple of big moves, but it's not enough to really put him away, and the whole time, Zach just shrugs it off, um, and sadly, like, lays into a couple of mean kicks. Uh, the day before, Sexsmith had defeated Gibson, who is, like, one of the best in England, someone we really both enjoy, but Zach Saber Jr. is an international star, is like a world level wrestler, someone who's head and shoulders above Zach Gibson. And even when he's trying to pull back, like there's no way Sexsmith can win. Um, the underdog hits his big DDT and tries to climb up the ropes to get to the corner and, and hit like a drop kick or something. And in the process of doing so, he nearly falls over, like loses his balance. And it takes him like a minute to get his balance back up, um, giving Zach enough time to stand back up, walk over like he's going to feed for the move. And he sees that he's clearly not ready yet and is like legitimately angry about it. <laughs> And eventually just swipes away at Jack Sexsmith's legs. So something with a I want kick. to say about Zach here is that, like, obviously we talk about how much Zach has a temper. And, yeah. like, he really, really was subduing this and trying not to hit Jack. Uh-huh. But Jack kept egging him on and slapping him and doing things that would normally piss Zach Saber Jr. off beyond belief. But even when Zach is, like, slapping him and kicking him in his leg, Zach Saber Jr. isn't going after his arm. Mm-hmm. Despite, he's he's the person in the world like best suited to go after this injury, but he doesn't do it. Yep, he's such a stand-up guy, sportsman, that he's going after his leg instead of going after the very obvious arm yeah. wrestling. And it's, I mean, like this is only like four minutes long, and it's it, it's a match between a very injured person and someone who clearly doesn't want to be there. And it's, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to watch. Like, it is super uncomfortable, but like I can't look away. Like it, it's such a it's such a heartbreaker after after the win that that Sexsmith had the day before. Eventually, eventually Zach just like slaps him down and slaps on a um a uh, half Boston crab, and that's it. And in and Sexsmith just taps out, and it's it's it sucks. <laughs> it, 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 it's a match that hurts. Yeah, it really does. But Zach Saber Jr. consoles him after the match. Yeah. Um, they grab one of the pride flags in the crowd. Zach Saber Jr. wraps it around him, and he walks with them to the back. Like it's great. It's great pro wrestling, even if it's not really a match. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm glad I made your list. It was a. Uh, it was really tough for me to cut it, but uh, we talked about it anyway, so mm-hmm. I'm so happy. Um. My number 83, another Zack Sabre Jr. match. Mm-hmm. Zack Sabre Jr. versus ACH from Evolve 80. Didn't have this one. This was, uh, which one was this? They had multiple matches, right? They had one, they had one match in Evolve. They had one, they, ma- had the one. they had one match in AW last year that you liked a lot. Okay, maybe that was it. Um, but here at Evolve 80, the story here was this was ACH's biggest match since, um, leaving ROH. Mm-hmm. And, I think this is probably the biggest match he still had since then. Um, I don't know what it is with ACH, but he still hasn't been put in many prominent, many prominent positions since leaving ROH. Obviously, despite, like, despite I, showing up in like New Japan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know what it is there, but this WrestleMania weekend match versus Zack Sabre Jr. ACH brings it, uh, 
he hangs, he's able to hang on to Matt with, Matt with Zach for a little bit. And as we talked about before, Zach Sabre Jr. has a temper and ACH goads him um, by spinning on him or slapping mm. him. It's either spat on him or, sl- or, or slapped him. I believe he spat on him. And Zach Sabre Jr. has this horrifying scowl on his face. And he goes over to ACH, takes his arm, and just repeatedly stomps on it. And that's where Zack Sabre Jr. Um, starts to do what we expect from him, and that's just ripping apart ACH's arm. Hmm. Down the stretch, obviously, we get the kind of spots you would expect from Zack Sabre Jr. facing a flyer. But I do think that these spots are pretty well done in particular. Like, I think the Zack Sabre Jr. ACH 450 flying for, like triangle spot looks pretty damn good, considering that it's been done over and over again. Sure. Um I really like these the way these two wrestle each other. I think it brings a nastiness out of ACH that I wish we saw more often. Mm. Zach is really good working on top, being a dismissive asshole, trying to get ACH to get to his level and stop fucking around and understand that there's like a big, serious match. And Zach Saber Jr. winds up beating him. But this is still one of the best ACH matches ever. That was probably my favorite match on the indies that weekend. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Um, slightly better than their AEW match. They got more time and more focus here than they got there. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a real great match for ACH and something that made me wish we got more ACH and Evolve. Mm. But sadly, that just hasn't worked out. And, uh, you know, the real disappointing end to 2017 for ACH after, like, I thought a really strong first, like, three months. Yeah, totally. I remember watching this live. I just, I guess it didn't hit me the way it hit you. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people there didn't even really like it that much, but I thought it was a really we- weird on. venue. That was just a weird venue that they had all weekend for all those shows. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So your eighty-two. My eighty-two is another Takahiro Yamamura singles match in Dragon Gate. This time taking on Shima in the King of Gate tournament. All right, did make my list, but I really like this match. Yeah. This um. So this is Yamamura guy like 18 months into his career or whatever uh taking on like the all-time dragon gate king a guy who leads him in the over generation stable and a guy who trained him to some degree his boss yeah legitimately (laughs) um and he really takes takes it to the veteran uh continues to apply this speed game that has done so much for him as of late um and Shima is a fast guy, like a real, a real speedster himself. Not so fast as he used to be, considering he's like 40 years old now. But, you know, he can still go. And he hangs up, um, or he hangs with the younger man. And they just have a great little Dragon Gate sprint up until the point that Shima goes for one of his signature knee drops off the top. And Yamamura ducks out of the way. And Shima collides with the ring knee first. And Yamamura just sprints on over, slaps on a knee bar. Um, Shima, for a second or two, it looks like Shima's like slapping Yamamura in the ass, like trying, just trying to do whatever to get him off of this hold. But quickly you realize like, oh my God, he's tapping out. Oh my God. Takahiro Yamamura, a dude less than two years into his career has a submission victory over Shima. And it's, it's this, it's this awesome moment. Yamamura after the match, like towers over Shima as he's laying on the ground and he's getting attended to by all these veterans and all these know what to do. Like it goes nuts. It's Corrigan. Like they're just like, what the fuck? Um, 
and Shima's Shima's down on the ground with a whole bunch of people around him, and Yomamura is standing over him, bent over, like hands on knees, and there's this awesome camera shot where you can see into his face. It looks like he's gonna cry. Like he's just so emotional that it looks like he's just gonna burst into tears. And the referee goes to lift his hand, and you can see the look on his face change as his eyes lift to meet the crowd, and he is just so so like so damn excited about this victory and it's it's just an awesome feeling and i got it so much with takihiro yamamura in 2017 and this was one of this was one of my, one of my favorite matches for it mm-hmm. all right so my number 82 is another dragon gate match that you'll have higher than me i know for sure masaki mochizuki versus big arshimizu from dragon gate uh, September 5th. <laughs> yeah i had this real high <laughs> all right so my 81 is a match I know you don't have. Well, last Bray versus Robbie Eagle from PWA called to arms um, August 4th. I meant to watch this and I just never got around to it. All right. To me, this is the real kickstart of Osprey changing as a, as a professional wrestler. Okay. Um, I think this is where we see that Osprey can control a match at least better than he was doing before. Uh, going up against Robbie Eagles, who... Uh, I don't think I have seen too much of before this. They've probably seen like three matches or so. Okay. But Robbie Eagles is a really fucking great wrestler. Um, great strikes, great high flying stuff. He'd okay. do some high impact stuff. Robbie Eagles would fit in to the like US indie scene perfectly. I think he's actually way more crisp than a lot of guys too. Robbie Eagles is great. So these two just go out there and from the start they're going at each other with hard strikes and high impact moves. And then while Osprey slows it down and starts working on um Robbie Eagles' arm, the pace starts to pick back up. Um some stuff in the crowd and some nutty spots out and on the outside. Uh this is where Will Osprey debuts that elbow to the elbow to the head that that he, that we've been seeing. Should not do it. <laughs> yeah, like you put it out and I'll like, he's been doing that move since August, man. <laughs> Terrible. Gonna give concussions to everybody. I do think there's like an obvious leg slap in there, but Oh, uh, even worse. Give somebody a concussion and a leg slap. <laughs> That's why I was like looking at him like, he, that, is, that is a pretty, that is a pretty hard elbow, but he is slapping a leg. So I'm not sure how hard he's actually doing it, but. Sure. The one I saw in particular was very gross. The Matt Taven one? Yeah, the Matt Taven one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really just a lot of action here. Um, the pro, uh, this is infamous because Osprey gets the promo talking about how, um, he's yep. going to come live in Australia and, Help the scene there, which I don't, he didn't wind up living in Australia. He did have a pretty long stay there, but I do think what's interesting is that uh, since then, Adam Brooks has gotten into PWG, and Adam Brooks uh-huh. is going to be making his debut in Progress soon. Good guy. Adam Brooks is very very talented, and Osprey faced him um, in MCW. That match barely missed my list, too, but that was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if he's not there, I do think someone like Adam Brooks has definitely benefited from Osprey being like a big fan of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robbie Eagles, I'm hoping, can get the same treatment soon. But this is a really fun match. And the real kickstart of when Osprey started getting into like top-tier wrestler of the year mode for me. Mm-hmm. Up free on YouTube, so you can go check it out easily. Mm-hmm. A lot of Osprey's high-end matches this year that happened in like What Culture and this match in particular all up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So you can go check those out. But put your 81. My 81 is a match uh, I don't think you saw, even though you saw the opener of this tournament, and we're going to talk about that one at some point. It's Juan Francisco de Coronado taking on James Mason in Chikara's Johnny Kidd Invitational. 
Yeah, I actually went back and watched the whole whole show. I did like this match. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Um. So James Mason's like a forty-year-old uh, world of sport guy. Uh, not necessarily like was on World of Sport, but of that style, of that English catches catch can wrestling style, uh, a living legend of the style. And once uh, Juan Francisco de Coronado is uh, a Chikara trainee who's been doing this like Ecuadorian royalty gimmick, a real stuck-up guy wears a bow tie to the ring, um, and watching this English catch wrestler befuddle and play jokes on and humiliate this uber stuck up Chikara champion was just a hoot. Like this was in the wrestle factory, a, a tight, intimate little crowd. And they are just having a whale of a time the whole time laughing their ass off at Juan Francisco de Coronado. And it's, it's just so much fun. Like anybody who's ever enjoyed like British style grappling would do well to watch this match because it's, it's such a great celebration of that style. The whole tournament was meant to be. And this was like certainly, um, like I don't, I don't want to say the best match of the tournament, but it was my favorite match of the yeah. tournament. You liked it more than Zach versus Quack? I didn't like it more. Like I have Zach Quack higher, but mm-hmm. um but it's like this one was just so much fun. Mm-hmm. Alright, so my number eighty is Berserk versus Overgeneration and Naruki Doi from Dragon Gate uh, on March eighth. I have that a little bit higher. We're gonna talk about it on this episode. Alright, so my, my number Oh, we haven't done my eighty. Okay. Okay, my 80 was a match I know, I think you said you didn't enjoy all that much. It's Goldberg versus Brock Lesnar from WrestleMania. Now, I did enjoy this match. Okay. <laughs> like, again, like, so another Brock Lesnar case where first few minutes are fucking great, and then I think the end of it is just kind of... Yeah. Well, the thing is, this one doesn't go all that long, so... <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, so I like the, like, literally the first two minutes, and then everything else ah. was like, all right. This does have, like, a big set-piece spot that is super goofy. Um couple of them, you could argue. Um, but really, like... Like, I remember loathing the idea of this match, like walking into the show that I knew I was going to hate, and I, it did end up hating. Uh, and I thought that this was going to be one of the worst matches on the show. Um, ended up being the best one. Like, this was the best possible version of this match there could have been, I think. Uh, good use of time, good use of energy of these two men, a good use of, like, how people perceive these two guys and what their best gifts are. Um, and like, it was a big, goofy set piece laden spot fest. But like, I don't know. Despite all its flaws, I had my like I had myself. I found myself having a great time for like six minutes. Not even six, like three minutes. Like this is a super short match. It's not three minutes. <laughs> it's like, isn't it three minutes? No, it's not. <laughs> okay, that's that's why I said like I enjoyed like the first few minutes, like six minutes maybe. Okay, so I was it the first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really, I really enjoyed like the first couple of minutes of it. The jumping over the spear spot is really awesome. Uh huh. This is, uh, this is sadly one of those matches that really gets undercut by WWE, um, production. Mm-hmm. And like one cool shot where you see Lesnar like get speared out of nowhere. But other than that, I think this match suffers from it, sadly. Mm-hmm. But this is a fun match. I actually understand people having this as like their number one. Yeah. Um, it's really action packed, uh, for the most part. But, uh, Right. My 79, match you just said you didn't have, but uh, Kenny Omega versus Minoru Suzuki from the G1 Climax. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you talk about this first? All right. So um, this plays with 
this um, little mini build they were doing with Minoru Suzuki and Kenny Omega, where on the first G1 show, this is this happened on night two. So on the first show, Minoru Suzuki and Kenny Omega are an opposite ta- opposite opposite size in the tag match, and Minoru Suzuki is bringing the fear of God into Kenny Omega. Well, Kenny, Kenny had Omega. already Kenny had already been sort of intimidated by him at the mm-hmm. press uh, the press release is that what that's called the presser before these shows mm-hmm. but they're opposite in this tag match mm-hmm. and Minoru Suzuki is just staring holes to Kenny Omega and Kenny Omega yeah. doesn't even want to look at him Kenny Omega is scared he is yeah. frightened of this man and I think that adds a little bit more juice to this match where as it starts off and there's this little stare down and Minoru Suzuki walks up to him Kenny Omega won't even look him in the eye mm-hmm. and I think that's a really neat touch um there's a lot wrong with this match, I can say. Um a few bug spots. Trying to do a poison rana on uh fifty something year old Minoru Suzuki was not the best idea from either guy. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um but I thought Minoru Suzuki was awesome in this match. If you're gonna have if you're gonna have a, a Minoru Suzuki and do his goofy facial expressions, then I think Kenny Omega is a perfect guy to match them. Mm-hmm. Um I like Kenny Omega selling here a lot. Uh, yeah, of, I did too. Yeah, yeah. A lot of one legged offense, um, hobbling on his leg, pretty committed to it, pretty committed to it throughout the whole match. Mm-hmm. You can say his facial expressions were kind of goofy, but again, that's Kenny Omega, and I find that stuff endearing. So I liked it. It also plays with, um, stuff from the 2014 G1 match between Minoru Suzuki and AJ Styles. Um, like the whole Bullet Club stopping interference <laughs> spot. I know. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a moment in this where Fale throws. I think it's like Kanemaru across the ring, and it's like the funniest thing. <laughs> it might be Despy. <laughs> it might be Despy. It's one of those little guys, yeah. But, um, yeah, so it plays with that. Um, I really enjoyed the match for Kenny Omega Selling, and I thought this was one of the best Minoru Suzuki matches or performances of the year. Uh-huh. Um, I like it more than the AJ match. And the reason, oh. I, the reason why I say this is that I think the AJ match is kind of like, it's cool. Sure. It is a very cool, awesome match for the fact that it's like a really unique dynamic. Uh-huh. I don't think there's a lot of meat to the match. I think this one has a lot more meat to it. Okay, I, I, I hear that. Um, I didn't like the fear stuff nearly so well. Um, and, and certainly I'll be the first to tell you that like fear is a weird thing that we don't necessarily understand. And it, it, it's, it's, you know, far be it for me to poke fun or poke holes into someone else's, um, unknowable fear of something else. And it's not to say that Suzuki isn't a fear, uh, a fearsome guy, like someone that people should be more afraid of. Well, let's, go, let's go into like Kenny Omega's whole thing in the G1 where he would do like individual stories for each mm-hmm. match. Sure. Based, like based on like the tag matches and like his Twitter use and all that stuff that he would build up his matches, you know, yeah. so they all have a different kind of story. Like the Tamatanga match had a different story, the Kojima match had a different story, the Yano match had a different story. And I and I appreciate that sort of thing, but I think his specific story here with Suzuki was a little far fetched for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my seventy nine that we're about to talk about is Suzuki taking on Yoshihashi a couple weeks earlier, and like if Yoshihashi, this career mid Carter, wasn't afraid of Suzuki, it's it's weird for me to think that this main event guy, this Tokyo Dome level guy, is like all of a sudden can't look. Suzuki in the eyes. Uh, and they, they, that story doesn't run very far either. Like they sort of throw it out the window. Like, 
Yeah, like, I think he, he, has the the match. Match. He, has, he has initial fear, but yeah. once Suzuki... And then Suzuki, like, like, rocks him once, and, and Omega's like, well, fuck it, like, let's go. Yeah, but we can transition into your 79 now. Okay, well, my 79 is, um, if not for a couple really good standouts from the juniors and from Okada, uh, the best... New Japan title match of the year, and I stand by it. It's Minoru Suzuki taking on Yoshihashi from uh, June in Corican Hall. Um, did just, you ever did you ever watch Naito versus the Juice from like May or whatever? I didn't. That's that's something I should have gone back for, but I'm not sure if I would have enjoyed it. But you're right that like I, I should have seen it. Yeah, I was just asking since I know you're a big Juice fan. Yeah, big Juice guy. Um, so this is like a quirk and main event, and it's just mega heated, mega efficient. Like uh, someone said it like a year or so ago that the indication that New Japan really is building and really is popular is that guys like Yoshihashi are getting inexplicably over. And the fucking Korokan crowd loves Yoshihashi here. And Suzuki is the perfect kind of person to put with him to torture him throughout a match. Both of them are flanked by their uh, chaos in Suzuki goon, <laughs> Suzuki gun <laughs> that <whole laughs> conversation recently. Um, they're flanked by their partners and there's a whole bunch of like stable warfare here and just metric tons of Suzuki beating up a mid Carter stuff in this. This goes like 26 minutes and it doesn't feel long at all. I, totally love it it's something that like appeals to me directly as a suzuki fan but i think like i think if people saw this this is like a c-level show for new japan but if people went out of their way to see this i think it's really good and i think people would dig it yeah i like the match too um i recall thinking maybe it just went a little too long for a yoshihashi match totally but yeah i, re- I did think it was good in general i thought minoru suzuki had a really strong year <laughs> stronger than people would put, give a credit for uh-huh. other than his never title matches and just like the weird booking surrounding that, had yeah. a lot of really strong performances. But we'll get to that with like higher rated matches on both of our lists. I would assume, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Um, all right, my number seventy-eight. Flash Morgan Webster versus Damian Dunn from Attack. Thank God it's not Winter Slam. Oh, okay. I didn't see this, and it surprised me that I made your list. All right, so I'm not a huge Damian Dunn fan. At least I wasn't fan a fan of the whole overbearing. Um, run as the attack champion. Oh. Uh, and Flash Morgan Webster, I kind of went over my relationship with him. Sure. We talked about the Keith Lee match. So, on paper, this is a match that I really should not like this much. But, um, there's a little added emotion here for the fact that, um, a few days prior, excuse me, Flash Morgan Webster had lost a pro wrestling chaos title where he was champion there. Okay. And I believe it might have been like some loser leaves town sip attached to it or loser leaves a promotion, whatever it was. And um that had people thinking that maybe Flash is on his way to NXT, on his way to the UK division, whatever they were gonna mm-hmm. do with him, people thought this is maybe the last we'd see a Flash Morgan Webster. Worth noting that uh to qualify for the Cruiserweight Classic, Zach faced Flash Morgan Webster. So clearly he was a guy who was on the WWE radar. He's been to um tryouts since then, I believe. Uh-huh. So they're very aware of Flash. Yeah. So there was that um, attached to this match. And right off the gate, they just come out here, go right at each other. Um, the crowd is really hot for it, surprisingly hot. I think a lot of attack title matches lack as much crowd and lack as much crowd heat as I would have liked. Sure. But this one has, um, more than enough, uh, reaction. But what comes out here is like the whole anti-fun police come out. Um, 
the attack roster come out to fight them off. And this pays off the whole Damian Dunn, Travis Banks story where Travis Banks was sort of subservient to Damian Dunn and the anti-fun police. Uh, Damian Dunn accidentally hits him. Um, Travis Banks shrugs it off. And then Damian Dunn actually gets in Travis Banks' face and disrespects him. Then Travis Banks um, officially turns on uh, Damian, allowing Flash Morgan Webster to get the win. Uh, I really like this is a well-executed match. There's a lot of interference. Um, not, not that dissimilar from like a older WWE main event style match. Uh, but I really think it works for this setting. It's a great moment to see Flash win. And it's the best Damian Dunn match I've ever seen. I think mm. Flash Morgan Webster probably has just as good matches this year. And I think the Rampage Brown match that I just saw from Chapter 60 was really fucking good too. So Flash in general has been on a really pretty, on a pretty good run, but I really like this match. And I like the fact that they were able to uh, reel me in on something where I didn't like that either guy that much coming in and it just hit me on a pretty strong level. So what's your 78? Uh, my 78 is, I think I already brought up one of his matches already. Maybe I didn't. If not, this is the first of them. It's uh, Oni Lorcan taking on Lars Sullivan in NXT. I do not think you did. So this is the first one. So I didn't okay. see this one either. Okay, so, um, I fucking loved Oni Lurkin in 2017. Started with that high-profile Drew McIntyre match we're going to talk about a little later. Um, though he had even better matches before that in the year, and it, they just didn't cross my radar. Um, and throughout the spring and summer, the dude just killed it in these awesome little sprints. Like these, these the hard-hitting, emotional matches that just checked off all the boxes I could ever want. Uh, sadly, this was sort of the end of that run. This isn't the last match he has in the year, but it's the last singles match he has. It's his shortest match of the year. Um, the other two uh, tag matches after this are are pretty short as well. Um, but it's a really good match to go out on. It's a smaller match than his usual thing, but it's like, uh, I don't know. It's got more kick to it. It's sort of like a, a habanero compared to a jalapeno. Um, he faces Lars Sullivan, who is this incredible monster, this like ogre looking dude who can just lay into him and like match him a strike for a strike. And to watch these two go at it and bounce off each other for two minutes is it's all I need. Lars is surprisingly good. Like it's not really like, is. Yeah, like he's like shockingly like really strong already. And granted, like he, they had him like hiding in the PC for a few years. Then uh-huh. I was already like I but I was aware of him back in like his Dylan Miley name because they I you know the picture of a dude with giant hands was floating around. So it's huge. <laughs> yeah, but uh, since he's became Lars Sullivan, he's been a highlight of NXT. Yeah, he's he's been really phenomenal, and I'm looking forward to what he does in 2018 as much as I'm looking forward to your 77. Fantastic segue. All right. Well, number 77 is Yaron Simmons versus Alexander James from WXW December 2nd. This didn't make my list, but it's a, it's a heck of a match. Yeah, so I adore this match, and I think watching this, this actually hit for me who Yaron Simmons reminds me most of as a wrestler. Okay. So this whole thing is Alexander James kept getting the best of Yaron Simmons on smaller shows, and Yaron Simmons is getting constantly fed up. Um, James is pompous and arrogant. He thinks he's doing nothing wrong, and I can imagine that's like the most infuriating thing for Yaron this Simmons. Is, this is also related to the greater uh, Simmons-David Starr 
uh, animosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yern Simmons is fed up, pissed off, and he is going to teach Alexander James a lesson via an I quit match. Mm. And I really like what they do here. There's a lot of uh, brutality. It's a lot of plunder, table, chair, kendo stick stuff, the basics. Uh-huh. But I thought they made great use of them. Um, I think what makes it different than a lot of I quit matches is that they had the balance of the weapons and Alexander James working over Yern Simmons' arm very viciously and convincingly. There were multiple times where I thought Yern Simmons was going to tell, was going to say, I quit. Mm-hmm. And I really bought into that story. I thought Yern Simmons' selling was fantastic. I thought um, down the stretch when Yern Simmons, like, just goes next gear and starts throwing James across the ring over and over again was fucking great. He looked like a monster. And uh the finish here is Yearn like putting James into the corner in some kind of way. I don't know how to describe it. But it's to where he can't really get out and James's uh-huh. head is left vulnerable. And Yearn has a kendo stick. And pretty much <laughs> like it's like insinuated that he's gonna decapitate him. <laughs> yeah. With a kendo stick. So James is saying, all right, no, 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 no. I quit. I quit. I quit. Like, no, don't do this to me. So James says, I quit. And Yearn is like, well, you're a dick. I'm going to do this anyway. And <laughs> gives him a hard as hell kendo stick shot to the neck. Yep. Yeah. It is brutal looking. It is. There's a lot of great selling, mm-hmm. um, great limb work and great limb targeting for Alexander James, who had a really strong, um, Mm. 2017. I wanted to talk about that, yeah. Yeah, so we can get into that a little bit. But as far as, like, Yaron Simmons, what he reminds me of, this match hit me, like, Yaron Simmons is a lot like The Rock. Like, I think Yaron Simmons has the kind of, like, big athletic guy qualities as where he Mm. isn't a giant, he isn't a monster, but he's a very strong and powerful dude. And he uses a lot of that, but he's also agile enough to do like kip ups and other things like that when he needs mm. to. One of the rock's biggest assets was always his selling. And I think Jern showed here that he can sell just as well as anybody on the roster. And when he wants to do his big power spots, like just throwing James all across the ring and James mm. is a pretty damn big dude too. Keep yeah. Mind that. Like six yeah. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking like, yeah, James, um, Jern really gave me some rock vibes watching him in that match. Totally feel that like uh, early rock before like he's clearly got loads of charisma but like he's not totally he's not totally there yet but like I hear you all right so let's get to like Alexander James was like 2017 like he didn't make my top 50 wrestlers of the year list but yeah he make my we don't know wrestling 100 like like 2017 started with me messaging a friend of mine who works in the indie scene um and he was upset about the fact that he was booked against alexander james on a prominent east coast indie show um and like that was he had already showed up in wxw by that point i guess i just hadn't seen it but like he has turned it around so much after being like one of the worst guys in czw (laughs) uh and being a dude who i loathed to watch and and has become so charismatic so crisp in the ring so like methodical like just a guy who is a joy to watch i'm so glad to see him at wxw i'm I'm glad that he's coming back this year in 2018 like just totally a guy who turned his stock around yeah i think uh i kind of want him a 16 carat but i understand if he i understand if he isn't in it if he isn't in it but i think he's earned a 16 carat run 
Yeah, he's really he's really good. He's he's such an asset to that promotion, and that promotion has helped him out a lot. All right. So, what's your seventy-seven? My seventy-seven is a notable show on an, a show, or a notable match on a show that people really enjoyed. It's Wolfgang taking on Tyler Bate in the semifinals of the United Kingdom Championship Tournament. This is a really good match, one of the more forgotten ones of that show, and I'm uh-huh. really pleasantly surprised at a major list. Yeah. Um, so I didn't watch the show. Funny enough, I uh, I didn't watch the show live, but I was on a Facebook phone call with two of my friends who were watching this live and just listening to them uh, watch it and freak out about it, which was a whole lot of fun. Um, so like, I knew certain things about the show leading into it, and I didn't watch it until months and months later. Uh, and I had mixed opinions about a whole lot of things. But this one was a match that knocked me on my ass. Um Coming into it, Wolfgang has already cut several promos, like backstage uh, hype promos, about the fact that like he is a veteran of the Scottish indie scene, has been busting his ass for years in places that nobody's ever heard of, um, works as a uh, bartender, and has watched people pass him by for years in the UK wrestling scene, uh, going on to WWE most notably. Um, and this is his big shot at the big time. And he's coming face-to-face with Tyler Bate, who um, goes on to win the tournament, and it's just an utter prodigy. And it's clear to Wolfgang that this is where he stops. And he is so frustrated with that fact. Uh, right at the beginning of the match, the crowd is losing their mind for Tyler Bate, chanting his name incessantly. And Bate's sort of like lost in it all. This little 19 year old kid who's like, holy shit, these people love me. And Wolfgang like yells at him and he's like, no, you, you have to deal with me in here. Um, and watching this, watching this veteran who is really good, like a really solid wrestler who I'd never really seen in a big way before this. Um, watching this guy come to terms with the fact that like this shot at the big time is over for him and watching them milk some holds and watching bait, like struggle to pick him up for the Tyler driver and hit it like as, as cleanly as he ever has was just really good, really good pro wrestling. Uh, yeah, this was, um, the lasting moment of it for me was watching it. Um, I think I watched the show live. I didn't, I didn't get to watch the night one live, but, um, going into this, people really thought that there was a chance Wolfgang was going to win this. Sure. The way they were building Wolfgang had people convinced that this was a very real possibility. Yeah. And, uh, the shocked face Tyler has when he puts away Tyler, I mean, when he puts away Wolfgang with the Tyler driver 97, I think is probably one of the better shots WWE has had all year uh-huh. because it's just like this embodiment of like shock that he's on, that he's going to the finals and shock that he lifted this large man up. Yeah. So I really love that. It's a really solid match. Um, Tyler in general had a really great UK tournament run. Like yeah. I thought, I thought his first, I thought his first round match with Tyler um, with um, Tucker was really good. I thought his Jordan Devlin match was pretty good. This match. And then the final, obviously, but yeah, I thought he had a really strong run in the UK tournament and Wolfgang, mm. Definitely saw his stock rise, even though he didn't pop up in as many places as you would have thought post yeah. UK tournament. When he did show up, people did like him. Like that Walter match, he had a progress. People were like, oh, this was actually really good. Quite good. Mm-hmm. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today 
and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation Wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Nation's JT Rizzero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event, Lucha Afterground, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Weekend Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong style history, strong style story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar and Westworld. Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, thehistoryofwrestling.com, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceFamination.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. So, uh, number 76, imagine, imagine I'm pretty sure you don't have Kazuchika Okada versus Evil from the G1 Climax. No, like this was a uh... Uh, a lot of people had told me about this match or said that I, I would have liked this match. Um, but it, it, I don't know. This one sort of just slipped away from me. I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as I thought I was going to. Okay. Um, did you know the result of this match? Uh, going into it? Um, I probably did. And the, my whole thing with the G1 was trying to watch it, uh, A, trying to watch it in total, mm-hmm. and B, trying to watch it unspoiled. And I think this was one of the ones that slipped through. All right. And that definitely... Impacts this match because mm-hmm. if you remember the whole G1, Kojiko mm-hmm. Okada is running through everybody. Mm-hmm. Has not dropped a fall at this point, yeah. Mm-hmm. Undefeated for over a year, just in general. Yeah. Singles competition. So, um, yeah, here we are in this match, and Kazuchika Okada is 
very animated in his G1. He was throughout the entire tour. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of not taking evil as seriously as he should. Yeah. And evil makes him pay. And this, um, I, f- I forgot where they were at, but this crowd is 100% for LIJ. They are 100% for evil. So this is where the Okada next story comes, comes into play. Um, and I, I forgot what it, what started it, but evil just going after Okada's neck and Okada starting gripping it and grimacing in pain throughout the rest of the match. Uh, there's a lot of the typical new Japan closing stretch, um, reversal reversals. But what makes this so different is that evil is the one to beat Okada. Mm-hmm. After this guy goes through everybody, like they didn't wait until Kenny Omega. They didn't wait until when Suzuki, they could, have even, they could have even had um Michael Elgin. That's who I thought was going to do. A Michael Elgin win, yeah. even a Kojima. Like no, mm-hmm. none of these, none of these guys could beat him. But Evil, the second highest ranked guy in Lij, was the one to get the victory. Mm-hmm. And that's an example I think of New Japan booking being pretty damn good in the fact that they used this victory. Yeah, that they could have gave to anybody else to elevate Evil to a status where. He main evented King of Pro Wrestling, mm-hmm. and it didn't do as well as previous King of Pro Wrestling shows. But the fact that they even gave him that spot, gave him that chance, was pretty gutsy. So mm-hmm. I like what that turned into, and I thought the match itself was pretty damn great with a lot of drama, a lot of a uh, great action, and the crowd was super hot for it. And the pop for when Evil pins Okada is massive. Was this um before or after? The Omega Evil match. This was after. Like the sh- this was after? Okay. Because I think Evil got popped in that match. Actually, like, gotta, I don't, I, I'm trying to think. I can look it up. It's but, either it's either the show after it or the show right before it. And I think that might have maybe had to do something. Maybe the fact that Evil was concussed and was just powering through it. Uh, yeah, and that was also just a really uncomfortable mm. match because I, you know, V triggers always look dangerous, but yeah, that, it just it, it was just a freak thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think this was before the show before it. I think, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, my seventy six is a match I'm not even sure you saw, and it's a match that I didn't really like all that much on my first viewing, but when I rewatched it and reviewed it, I found a new appreciation for it. It's Trevor Lee defending the CWF Mid Atlantic Heavyweight Title against Eric Royal. All right, did not make my list. I didn't get around to seeing it. Um, so this match is stuffed this match is bloated like there's a lot in this it only goes only (laughs) it only goes about 40 minutes um but they pack a whole lot in there whole bunch of shenanigans whole bunch of um interference there's three referees in this meaning that there's two ref bumps there's a whole lot going on here but I really like it. It's very much a CWF match in that it is steeped in the history of the promotion. Uh, this is a title match and is going to determine who has the record for the longest reign with the heavyweight title. Uh, Eric Royal had the reign previously and Trevor Lee is at the time of this show one day away from breaking that and Eric Royal's coming back and it's like, Nope, this is my, this is my record. This is my legacy. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to defeat you. Um, it's steeped in history of 
champions before either one of these two men were champions. Um, it's steeped in the past history of matches between these two, all of them for the CWF Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight title. Um, it deals with feuds that these two have going on outside of this match. Um, it's so much fun. Coach Gemini is not even a wrestler in this match, but is the most entertaining part about it. It's like, it's just, it's a whole bunch of shenanigans and I love it for it. Like I, I can't speak highly of this match enough. I understand that it is very confusing or very overwrought for a new viewer in the same way that something like Trevor Lee versus Roy Wilkins in the 104 minute match was a whole lot to take in for me. Um, but like, I swear to God, like if you just set aside the time and watch it and you'll listen to the commentary from Brad Stutz and Cecil Scott, like this thing is, is really magic. Yeah. I didn't get a, I didn't get a chance to watch it. Um, one of the title defenses I missed and I'm probably going to go back and watch pretty soon. Mm. All right. So my number 75, a match you haven't said yet, but another Trevor Lee match. Trevor Lee versus Chip Day from the CWF Cronoodle Cup night two. I have this a fair bit higher. All right. My number 75 is the first match in a series of matches, a, a theme that we have been speaking about these last couple episodes. It's Kushida versus Hiromu Takahashi for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight belt at the Tokyo Dome. Did not make my list. Oh, it didn't? Okay. Uh, did you, you like this series of matches, right? Yeah, I did. I liked it a lot. Um, I had a weird experience watching this match, though. Because okay. I had a virus scare on my computer watching this match live. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, so like I was trying to fix that. Okay. So like my Chromecast was I'm projecting the um uh, match. So while that's happening, I'm probably trying to like figure out what the fuck is going on with my computer. <laughs> so yeah, I had a weird time trying to watch this match, but I went back and rewatched it and I liked it a lot. It's it's not the best match these two had. I have the two uh two matches that follow it higher than this one. Um but it's like a good first outing. It tells the story of Kushida being like this very dominant champion who comes face to face with the who, the new hotness, this guy who he's known before as a young lion, but someone who has completely reinvented himself under the Hiromu Takahashi and Kamaitachi names. Um and he really doesn't know what to do with it. And he tries to, you know, apply the same sorts of strategies that have always won him matches before, but it's not enough in the end. There's some sloppiness, mostly due to, I think, unfamiliarity, but like at its best, this match is a really good juniors match. And if you can stomach that sort of thing, there's, there's a lot to take in here. Um, yeah, I really appreciated this match in particular for the fact that, uh, Kushida really did not know. How mm-hmm. to handle him. Um, this is a completely off the wall, eccentric, frenetic character that nobody knew what to yeah. expect. Now, granted, if you're watching, um, CMLL and even some of his US, US stuff, then you were very familiar with the kind of, um, wrestling that Hiromu Takahashi or Kamataji brings. Mm-hmm. But for the New Japan audience that had only had the Dragon Lee match, this was really something that was like an eye opener. Yeah. And it was a very convincing finish with the Death Valley driver, um, into the corner, um, followed by the time bomb. But yeah, a really, really fun match. And I thought, uh, what they did later was better, but I enjoyed this a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. So my number 74, a match I actually do not know how you feel about, but 
Ricochet versus Walter from PWE <laughs> All-Star Weekend. You said Ricochet versus, and I was like, oh my god, we're going to have the same match at the same number. <laughs> uh, my 74 is a Ricochet match in PWG, but it's not this one. Mm. Uh, this one did not make my list. I sort of enjoyed it. It was it was a weird one for me, so why don't you take it away? I adore this match. I thought this was um, just as good in-ring-wise mm. as the Ricochet-Walter match, but, I mean, as the Zack Sabre Jr.-Walter match, but the Zack-Walter match has significance to me that I'll get into later on the list. Mm-hmm. But um, the in-ring here is phenomenal. Uh, this toys with this recent Ricochet quasi-heel turn, this new dickhead attitude, yeah. and he's going up against Walter, who just has no tolerance for this uber-athletic flippy shit, so to speak. And granted, yeah. Ricochet is way more than that as a wrestler. But Ricochet does try his best to, um, you know, bring his, like, from fiery athletic offense to Walter and just does not work. Ricochet does start working on, um, Walter's, uh, leg. Uh-huh. Taking some offense there. I uh, like his leg offense a lot. He's very opportunistic. Um, Ricochet is here, which is, uh, means he's very toned down. On the athletic spots, he's not doing as much flying. He can do it, and when he and when he does do it, it's very smooth and well timed. But what he is doing here is taking cheap shots, and um, you know, just in general, taking shortcuts to beat this guy. Mm-hmm. And Walter plays this great monster for Ricochet to try to um, outsmart, so to speak. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I thought this was um, a phenomenal Walter performance, just chopping the living hell out of Ricochet and making him pay for um, trying to disrespect him and cheat and do all these things. Ricochet kind of plays with the aspect of being afraid of Walter because, I mean, who wouldn't be? Like, he is a big, giant man, and Ricochet is kind of befuddled, trying to figure out how to beat him. So I really like what they do here. I think it's a smart match. I think what they do in the ring is really strong. And I thought the finish with um Ricochet beating another big guy via roll-up played off the bowl of finals. And I thought that was, that was a really neat aspect of it, too. It was a cool match. I think I was uh, distracted by the number of women dressed up as cats in the first row, <laughs> seated by Dave Meltzer. <laughs> but hey, that's just what PWG is. And speaking of which, next up, I've got a PWG match at 74. It's Ricochet taking on Leo Rush. Mm, all right. I know you like this match way more than a lot of people, but I thought this was, yeah. it was good, too. Uh, for a while, this was my highest rated, I mean, I don't rate things, but this was the match I thought most of in PWG for 2017. Um, and it's, it's not close behind the first one. Um, I really, I don't know. I'm not always a fan of high flyer versus high flyer matches, especially not in this modern wrestling environment. Um, Ricochet versus Will Ospreay being a, a notable example of my derision for that sort of style. But here, there was something about this one. It was like, obviously, it was an experienced high flyer, like one of the best in the world, taking on someone who's a little younger. And not, as you mentioned yesterday, not so much someone who is like a big flippy guy, but is just more of a uh, a speedster. Mm-hmm. Um, and Leo Rush being much younger and much less experienced is not nearly so polished as Ricochet. And that shows here, and he's sort of sloppy here, and he has to cut corners, and he has to like power through some of his inefficiency. And watching him do that and 
occasionally get the better of Ricochet until Ricochet's just like, fuck that and cuts him off with a, with like a well-placed elbow that Leo just can't pull off. That sort of thing was really cool for me. Um, and it, I don't know, it just had a level of poise and a level of structure that I don't find often in PWG these days. And it was something I really appreciated. Uh, I really enjoyed Leo Rush's PWG run for as short as it was. Totally. I thought he was really getting the most out of his matches. And I remember initially people were saying that the crowd wasn't, the crowds weren't taking the Leo Rush that well. And I don't know, watching those matches with, uh, Phoenix, with Ricochet here, with Keith Lee versus, uh, versus Trevor Lee. He had a really strong run, and it's a shame that he got signed when he did, because yeah. I thought he would have had an awesome bowler run. I think he was the best guy in PWG of the year. I would not argue with you there. I like thought, he, yeah. he was just always awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so my number 73, uh, Authors of Pain versus DIY from NXT TakeOver Chicago. This Oh, this is the ladder match, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, I don't know. Still don't like Authors of Pain. Didn't like this one so much. Why don't you tell me why you liked it? Um, in like the WWE world, they always kind of present that Rock Triple H match for the Intercontinental Title. Um, that ladder match as yeah. like the slow, brutal ladder match as opposed to the fancy, dazzling one. And to me, this is the real example of the slow, brutal ladder match. Okay. There's some nutty spots like um DIY doing um dual splashes off the top of a ladder um to a- to both AOP members who were prone on ladders that were mm. laid across the barricade in the rings. Um Ciampa nearly dying, like landing face first and it looked awful. <laughs> um they both like they bounced off the ladders the AOP were la- that AOP were laying on. But there's a lot to dig in, into here. I really love the pace of it. Um, one of the spots that will always stand out is Johnny Gargano taking the bullet for Tommaso Ciampa, where mm-hmm. AOP is about to take jump Ciampa's head off with a ladder. Johnny Gargano moves him out the way and eats the shot for him. And it helps that the ladder shot itself looks absolutely nasty. Yeah. So it adds to the story that he actually took a very dangerous spot for Ciampa. Uh, I think Gargano was excellent in this match. I think AOP um, for a ladder match really hold their own for bigger guys, which I was surprised to say. Sure. Um, but yeah, I really think I really like the action of it. I really like the pace. I really like the danger and camaraderie that I see in this match. Uh, and obviously, I mean the angle, like uh-huh. this uh-huh. going on last on a takeover, the first tag team match to go on last on a takeover, and they have the angle at the end. Where Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano were on the ramp waving and the crowd is giving them a standing ovation. And they lure you in and pretty much give you the Zane Owens mm-hmm. when they had like the um, credit box at the bot, at the bottom right of the screen. There's no commentary and you think they're about to sign off. And all you say, all you see is Tommaso Ciampa grab Johnny Gargano's head, lean in and say, this is my moment now. This is my crowd and throw him into the um, stage. And then this beatdown ensues that's mm. absolutely brutal. The crowd is in a stunned silence and uh results in Ciampa giving him um plenty of knees to the head, but then an air raid crash off of the um 
off of the announce table through a table that's uh, below the commentary table. It's a very brilliant, brilliant angle, mm. a great end to DIY. And something that had me emotionally invested when I was not a huge DIY fan, the way a lot of people were. They had great matches, but I was not emotionally invested in them as a team. Yeah. And even I was like, okay, I don't think you could have done that angle any better. And that followed a match that I really liked to. Yeah, even if I didn't enjoy the match itself, like the angle is super well done. Uh, and I'm certainly no big DIY fan either. And I think a big part of that efficiency, though, it comes from the fact that this is one of the few things WWE only does rarely. Yeah. Um, you're 73. My 73 is a match that I watched uh, live on Flow Slam and was honestly one of my favorite viewing experiences of the year. And uh, I don't think you even watched it with us. You might have. I don't fully recall. It's Dan Severn taking on Matt Riddle in the f- the main event of GCW's Joey Janela's Spring Break. No, I wasn't able to watch the show live with you guys, but I did watch the okay. show by myself, and it was uh, it was an experience. This match was a shoot. Uh, coming into this, <laughs> coming into this, we weren't sure that Dan Severn was going to show up. First and foremost, there was a lot of talk that he was pissed off at Matt Riddle, that he didn't like the kid's style, that uh, he was angry about some things that Riddle said, I believe, and that he just was not going to show up. So we were wondering if the match was going to happen at all. So Dan Severn walks his way out for the main event, and we're like, okay, so he's here but what's he going to do? Like, this is an old man. Sure. But he's got like the most shoot credentials of anyone alive, maybe. And he could easily shoot on Matt Riddle. Like what's going to happen here. Um, and that whole dynamic makes for a wonderful little match where Matt Riddle really has to struggle to get his shit in, which is like my favorite sort of a riddle match. Um, real grapple heavy, real strike heavy real Um, sometimes like, uncooperative suplex heavy match. Um, it, it was just so much fun because I didn't know what was going to happen. I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Uh, this match features maybe my favorite use of like a German suplex no sell ever because it's, it's like Matt Riddle taking a not as polished as it could be German suplex from an old man and just going, fuck you old man. <laughs> um, Awesome little match. One of my favorite Matt Riddle matches of the year. Best Dan Severn match I've seen probably this millennium. Uh, just something I really dig. Um, I might as well probably get into it with some matches you may have, may have higher, but Matt Riddle had a really interesting year with matchups that were really fun that on paper you're like, how the fuck is this going to work? Uh-huh. That's, I mean, that's why I liked him so much, really. All right. So my number 72 was a match that you just mentioned, but it's AJ Styles versus John Cena from the Royal Rumble. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, so, God. I had no problem with this match at the moment. Okay. Watching it live. Because, all right, whatever. John Cena gets his 16th world title win in uh-huh. the biggest Royal Rumble show ever uh-huh. against someone that you could argue at this point is maybe his best opponent. You sure. You like disagree, but there's guys like uh, Punk, Edge, whatever you want to throw in there, but AJ and the quality there has warranted enough that he's in the discussion. So, I really like the story going into it. I like the promos. I like the back and forth they had. Uh, this match has a lot of callbacks. Uh, John Cena does a figure four during this match. But, you know, whole 16th world title win thing, Tyler mm-hmm. Flair, uh, callbacks to the previous matches. A lot of fireworks, a lot of 
big moves, kicking out of attitude adjustments, which is, you know, that's John Cena. <laughs> sure. You know? This uh, is, uh, this is maybe the biggest, like, PWG Cena, epic match Cena match that there has been, I think. Yeah. So you know what you're expect, you know what to expect here, but I thought both guys came to play and, you know, they're just smooth as hell with each other. Like, there's no, hmm. like, miscommunication. There's no, like, hesitation. These guys just have this great chemistry where, I don't know, seeing John Cena do a code red on AJ Styles <laughs> sure. as smoothly as he does it yeah. is what, like, what makes this, like, so interesting to me that they have, like, that kind of chemistry with each other. Um, what happens here is the rolling AAs. Um, mm. finish AJ off here. Cool finish. Yeah, really cool. I think the first time he's ever done that, probably. He may have done multiple AAs to somebody, but not Just not, not with this, like, derision, mm-hmm. you know? Like, he, like, he, he meant it when he yeah. did those. It, it, was, very, it, it was very emphatic. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that aspect of the match. The match itself mm. is fucking phenomenal, and the whole tiny record thing is cool. Now, the reason why it is so low, Okay. On my list is because what happens after is kind of my problem with WWE in general when it start with certain things. It's like you know, you gave Johnson to this big win, uh-huh. and then literally two days later, it does not mean shit because we're going into this um, elimination chamber show. Yeah, and it's not the fact that he loses it. It's like the fact that like the fact that he got his 16th title didn't even matter. Like you made it a part, a big part of this AJ build. And then we transition into this. And the fact that he got a 16th world title win does not matter by Tuesday. Mm. And that really annoys me. That's how the fact that this then leads to Bray Wyatt. <laughs> <getting> the title, <laughs> like, uh, Which goes so poorly. I mean, really, this is the match that kills SmackDown. Like, honestly, you could, yeah, that's a strong argument against it. Sure. Like the fact that, this is the match that kills SmackDown, and this is a great match, and it's not uh-huh, either guy's uh-huh. fault what happened to SmackDown. Sure. But everything that they had planned ahead of this killed SmackDown, and this was really the end of that, um, um, like, what, eight, nine-month run of SmackDown yeah. being incredible? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, like, in a lot of ways, it was like the end of an era of, like, that, you know, really short run with SmackDown being fantastic television, but everything it's- else happened. Yeah, go ahead. It's funny you say that because it's sort of why I like it. And now there are reasons I had this even lower than you did. There are certainly reasons that I didn't enjoy this match as much as I could have or as much as other people who who would have. I've seen people have this ranked at like number one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very WWE trope heavy. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know, like big dramatic facials, lots of kickouts, uh, big zoom ins on the camera, big yelling from the commentary team. 50,000 people in the Alamo Dome chanting incessantly. Like, this match is sort of a nightmare at points. Um, but at the central core, buried along, uh, underneath all of that, is a narrative that I'm really into. And it's two guys who can feel, like, age catching up to them, who can feel their careers slipping through their fingers, who want to retain or accomplish a legacy that will stick around for a long time and they approach it in two very different ways. And, um, and Cena like doing as much as he can to get to number 16, even though it's so clear to him that he is not going to hold on to this belt long that like as much as he did in this match and as well as he wrestled this match, he is not long for this world 
as a world champion. I thought that was really interesting. All right. So that was my 72. What's yours? My number 72 is a young man taking on another young man that we've talked about several times on this podcast already. It's T-Hawk versus Takahiro Yamamura from Dragon Gate's uh, April 7th show. And I had that match, let me see, at 110. Okay, let's go into it. All right, you go ahead first. Okay, so um, once again, this was an example of, uh, I think, Yamamura um, subverting my expectations. This comes after a big, I think this comes, yeah, this comes after a big 10-man tag that these two were in, in which they were very antagonistic against each other. Speaking of that match was on my list. That was the um, Mm -hmm. March 8th tag. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it a little bit later because yeah. I have it higher. All right. So that was uh, um yeah. So these two have already butted heads a couple of times, and I came into this thinking like, oh, they're gonna have just a little sprint because it's like um, I think this is like fourth of seven or some shit on a Corican show. Um, instead, they have another like protracted, drawn out, methodical sort of match, but it's super mean. Like it's mean spirited. Um, so many chops. T-Hawk throws some of the best chops in the fucking world and really lays into it here against Yamamura. So many kicks, so many slams, so much animosity. Watching like the guy who is getting built up as the new number one heel in the promotion and who is frankly going to lead this promotion into the future. Watching him struggle against the new hotness is just so much fun. Uh, yeah, I really just love the chippiness in this match. Um, brings out a side of T-Hawk that we don't get to see that often, even mm-hmm. um, in his new heel character in Berserk. Takahiro Yamamura, just a part of his fantastic run. And yeah, this is just another case of Takahiro Yamamura just being like the king of Korokin this year. Yeah. Like, every single time he showed up in Korokin Hall, and whether, whether it was a eight-man, ten-man tag, a singles match, a tag match, Dude just always delivered what might have been the match of the night on every single show. I remember wanting this match to be longer and wanting it to be bigger. Like I joked, like these two should have had, uh, headlined Kobe World Hall, <laughs> the biggest <laughs> show of the year for Dragon Gate. But at the same time, like I know that if this was bigger, it would be sort of worse because mm-hmm. Yamamura is not necessarily at that point in his career yet. So like for what it is at this one specific moment in time, it's, it's really stellar. All right, so my number 71 is Zack Sabre Jr. versus Leo Rush from Evolve 85. Okay, I uh, I know I watched this. I don't think – I'm not sure that I finished it, so why don't you tell me about it? Uh, This plays off of the fact that they had a match with each other on the previous set of Evolve shows, which at the time was a very weird booking decision. Very odd. And probably is still weird in hindsight considering the fact that Leo Rush did not appear that much for Evolve after this. Might yeah. have been his last of all match. I have no clue. But um I think it was just Gabe like saying, Well, let's get a couple good matches out of this kid. Yeah. So and that's more than fine. So we come in here and Leo Rush is still trying to hang with Zack Saber Jr. in the mat. And I think Zack Saber Jr. loses his patience with Leo Rush quicker than he did before. Mm-hmm. Um something about Leo Rush that people may forget that Leo Rush had a pretty strong amateur wrestling background before going into pro wrestling. I don't think I knew that. Um it's highlighted in one of those uh Kenny Johnson documentaries. Was Leo Rush okay. was one of the first documentaries he did. Okay. Um and Leo Rush had a pretty extensive amateur wrestling background, so the mat wrestling here is pretty damn good. Um something that's underrated about Zach is he's very speedy. 
not in a yeah. speedy, athletic, high flying kind of way, but he's slick. He's yeah. like hard to get a hold of. Like it's almost like he's like a liquidy like human being. <laughs> like like he is very weird to grasp and get a hold of. And Leo Rush moves just as similarly. Uh-huh. So they have really unique exchanges on the mat. Um, that then transition and transitions into some stellar arm work from Zack Sabre Jr. And, uh, similar to the match that you had on your list last year with, uh, Gresham versus Leo Rush. Although mm. Leo Rush's arm selling here was stellar. I think Leo Rush is definitely one of the best, um, going today when it comes to selling and selling his arm. And Zack Sabre Jr. is the best at going after one. So I thought that made for some great action here. Callbacks to their other match with uh, Leo Rush checking out of the pin combination that Zach beat him with last time. Mm. A fiery Leo Rush um, taking off his wrist tape, giving Zack Sabre Jr. kicks to the chest. Zack Sabre Jr. not going to take that shit lying down and gets up and gives him European uppercuts and even harder kicks. And eventually Zack Sabre Jr. puts him away with another nasty submission in his, in his repertoire. But it expanded on the ideas of the first match. And... uh you know, I really like where they went with it. Even if we didn't get more Leo Russian involved after what they gave us in a short time there, I thought was pretty damn good. And this match being the highlight. Okay. 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 Uh, that was your 71, correct? Yeah. Okay. So my 71 is a match I brought up just a couple minutes ago. It's Drew McIntyre taking on Oni Lorcan in NXT. Uh, this match was really fun. But mm-hmm. I remember liking at least one more Oni Lorcan match more than this. I have like five ahead of this one. Uh, it's a I lot. Wonder, I wonder if my favorite one is the one you have the highest. I'm not totally sure it is, but we'll we'll get into it. Um, this is the match that started it all and like really drew eyes to the 2017 that Oni Lorcan had. Even though I think he had better matches before this in the year, um, they just you know they just didn't cross my path. Um, Real fucking slobber knocker, real mean, ugly. Like this is a match GR would call bowling shoe ugly. It's not. It's not pretty. It's not polished. But like for an extended squash, that's sort of what it needed to be. Um, these guys are like taking rough bumps. Like there's, uh, a, spider, the big, there's a spider belly to belly to the floor. Mm-hmm. No, it's not to the floor. It's in the ring. What, it's, not the floor? it's not to the floor. It's not to the floor. It's gonna swerve to the floor. <laughs> oh my god, Oni would be dead. Uh, but no, he takes the spider belly to belly, and Oni lands on it. Like, like on his side, like on his ribs, it, it looks super rough, but that's what sells me on this match. It's just two guys who, um, I'm not a big fan of McIntyre, but when he wants to, he can really beat the snot out of people. And Oni's great at a getting the snot beaten out of him and beating it out of other people. Um, and he, and he's great at emoting while doing that. And I mean, that's what we get here. It's like a four minute match, but it's, it really knocked me on my ass and made me, Go out of my way, uh, my way. <laughs> it made way. me go out of, made me go out of my way to watch all of the matches that Oni Lorcan had that made tape in 2017. And like, that was one of my favorite things of all in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't feel nearly as strongly about this match as a lot of people did. Sure. It is really fucking fun. Really hard hitting. Um, they crammed so much into that short amount of time. Uh-huh. Uh huh certifiable, like, you know, who by any definition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. My number 70 is a match. Uh, you haven't seen, but Ooh. Kento Miyahara versus Jake Lee from all Japan from the first day of the champions. Uh, no, Jake Lee, a mustache. No, I didn't see it. Um, so this has, um, other than being a really great match in front of an awesome cork and crowd, uh-huh. there's a lot going in here. Like, uh, 
The fact that Kento Miyara and Jake Lee are slash were tag team partners for a while at Next Stream. Mm-hmm. So there's this aspect of Kento Miyahara who's already achieved this like level of greatness that Jake Lee is still trying to attain. Yeah. And Jake Lee comes out here and busts his ass. He is motivated, taking it straight to Kento. He is fired up. He is not holding back just because Kento is his friend. Mm. And these guys just go out there and they beat the hell out of each other. Uh, I really like the story told of Jake Lee just not quite being on Kento's level, but he's not going to stop fighting. And Kento being the ace of the company, um, being able to withstand that everything that Jake Lee is throwing at him. Uh, Kento winds up winning, I'm pretty sure, or Jake Lee might have got the shock, got, got the shock upset. Don't remember which. But I really enjoyed this. Um, one of the better matches from All Japan throughout the entire year. I think I might have, I think I might only have one All Japan. No, I have two All Japan matches higher. Okay. But, um, yeah, really awesome stuff. I definitely would think that you would enjoy this. Jake Lee, um, said I'm not not gonna get a chance to say this anywhere else. Really, really awesome year. Really improved. I thought he was improving in 2016 too, but with the singles opportunities he was given, I thought he had a really fantastic year. Um, great tag team stuff and it sucks that he got injured and wasn't really able to experience, um, you know, a renewed push, um, Hmm. with this, um, you know, improvement that he found in 2017. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Uh, my number 70 is a match I brought up uh, a little while ago. It's Keith Lee versus Leo Rush from PWG's man on the silver mountain. And it's my highest ranked PWG match of the year. All right. I don't have this on my list. So go ahead. Um, so this is a terribly charming match. Uh, it's a match that like appeals directly to my sent uh, to my sentimentalities and my, um, just the things that I enjoy in pro wrestling. Uh, there's a whole bunch of like, um, physical comedy in this. They play with the, the huge size disparity between these two men. It's a great big man, little man match. Uh, and they start out like in a pretty comedic fashion doing that. Uh, like the first move of the match is the two men locking up and Keith hoisting the diminutive Leo Rush into the air, placing him atop uh, the turnbuckle and shooting just <laughs> a delightful look at the camera. Um, a little while later, Leo's unloading the series of moves on Keith and goes to shit can him out of the ring, just throw him out so he can go hit him a dive or something. And he, Keith just doesn't budge. And there's a, there's a wonderful cut, like shout out to the production department at PWG, all one of you. Um, there's a wonderful cut from the hard cam to the, uh, the ringside camera that, really makes that moment as uh, effective as comedy as it can be. And it's like on top of that, it's just a quality big man, little man match from two of the best big and little men in wrestling right now. And it just, it was so much fun for me. This was, I, I watched this cause I didn't remember the content of the match outside of the comedic stuff. And I didn't really list it off in my review. So I rewatched that right before we recorded and it just so, so enjoyable. I loved it. All right, and uh, that's number 69. Obviously, we're the nicest portion of the list. <laughs> hey. Um, Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Tatsuya Naida from the G1 Climax. Okay, I didn't... Uh, I, no, I totally watched this. I'm trying to remember. There's something about this. 
match. I don't remember what it is. You tell me about it. Um, well, this is my easily my favorite of the Hiroshi Tanahashi Tetsuya Naito matches that happened in 2017. Okay. Um, I think the crowd heat here is pretty off the charts. Mm. Hiroshi Tanahashi is really leaning into being a heel, being yeah. a complete asshole. And, uh, yeah, I think that aspect of it is what makes it stand out to me compared to the matches at Dominion and Wrestle Kingdom. Sure. Um, it still plays off of themes there, like um, Hiroshi Tanahashi and his Cloverleaf, which definitely added, had some added drama to it since he had beat Naito with it at Dominion. Yeah. Um, and pretty much like the typical Naito Tanahashi stuff that you would expect. There's a whole bunch of layered storytelling and callbacks to years and years, callbacks to 2017 matches, callbacks to the stuff before. There's a lot going on here. And I would admit it took me two watches to make sure to like catch most of it. Okay. Um, and I probably would like it even more if I, if I watched it again, but it's something that kind of gets lost. Um, there's always one match during the G one weekend during those like last few shows that gets lost. That's just really stellar. And this is probably that one. And I enjoyed the hell out of it. And, uh, out of that trilogy in particular, I thought this was the favorite or my favorite at least. Okay. Um, my number 69 is also a match from the G1 Climax. It's Juice Robinson taking on Toru Yano. Oh, right. I did not watch this one. Oh, I did watch this one. But, oh. yeah, I did watch this one. I remember Killing liking me. this for the fact that Juice was, like, so fucking serious. Like, I'm going to kill you, Yano. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is my highest-ranked Juice Robinson of the ma- uh, year. Fuck. This is my highest-ranked Juice Robinson match of the year, uh, which I really think belies the sort of year that he had. But it, like, accurately describes how high quality this match is. Uh, it's the best comedy match of the year, I think. It's it's one that's full of nonverbal communication, which is something I'm a sucker for. Um, like, just the dumbest... The dumbest, like, count-out-based comedy. This is This is so funny. So, like... By this point, the G1 Climax, this is what, day 16. So, like, we're deep into the tournament at this point. Um, in my review of this match, I was, like, just a couple hours before this, I was thinking, like, shit, I'm so fucking tired of these countouts in Toriano matches. And he pulls off not one, but two in this match that had me dying. The first one is, like, the two of them, um, I think Toriano, like, hides under the ring to sort of to sort of like disorient Juice Robinson and then maybe attack him from behind. But Juice sees it coming and goes under the ring with him and you can hear them fighting around underneath the ring. And eventually the referee's like, fuck this and starts counting them out. Um and then afterwards <laughs> Yano ties Juice Robinson's dreadlocks to the barricade. Yes, that is <laughs> and he, awesome. And he barely makes it in back in time. And he does this like really dramatic turnaround when he when he um fr- finally frees himself from the barricade to slide back in the ring. Uh and immediately <laughs> he charges at Yano and then goes directly into the corner and uh eats shit and collides with the the corner post. And it's just so much good comedy in this. Um Juice Robinson was like the best straight man to the the trickster spirit that is Toriano, and it it just delighted me endlessly. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by how much Juice Robinson was not cooperating with this comedy. You know, uh-huh. you would think that for being like he's a, a real Japan, lighthearted guy. Yeah, you think for like being like a New Japan Army guy, Toguchi Japan, or whatever you want to call it, that you would think he'd go around with the lighthearted stuff. And he's like, no, I'm this is G one. I'm here to win. <laughs> We're not doing this. Like, <laughs> so much fun. All right, um, my number sixty eight. 
Will Ospreay versus Rey Mysterio from what culture world pro, what culture pro wrestling um day one of the World Cup finals? This made my list. Let me look where it was. This I came in at uh, number one eighty six on this one. Okay, um, so I know a lot of people don't watch what culture. So to add some context, especially since it's uh, especially since it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it's another company now. So, Different company. Um, uh, to get some context, in what culture will Osprey have been a heel for a while? Uh-huh. Um, sort of aligned with an Austrian authority figure there. Um, I actually liked his heel work there a lot, highlighted by a really fun singles match against Drew Galloway. But um, this is where Will Osprey starts to so- somewhat turn babyface, or just mm-hmm. full out turn babyface throughout the entire tournament. Um, and here he's going up against Rey Mysterio, um, the generational like. Like he is high flying, mm-hmm. for and and notably he is the baby face for a good generation of people. Mm-hmm. So here we are, 2017, and Will Osprey um, has gotten comparisons to like this 1994-95 Rey Mysterio, uh-huh. where what he's doing in a particular region of the world is just lighting it on fire. And then once he came over to the U.S., people were equally as dazzled. And he takes it to Japan, people are equally as dazzled. So the comparisons were fair in that he blew up somewhere else and he just kept that same hotness wherever he went. And I think what we get here is a match that plays with these generational roles, but Osprey is very toned down. Rey uh-huh. Mysterio is able to step up and bring his A game. Rey Mysterio, in his older age, is very good at controlling a match. Um, and I think that's evident here, slowing down the pace with Osprey and only, um, using big spots down the stretch. Really, there are. Rey Mysterio doesn't get enough credit for how smooth he still is. Granted, he is not as fast as he used to be, but some of the stuff Rey Mysterio still does, not many people in the world of wrestling can pull off. And Will Ospreay obviously is one of those guys that has a lot of things in his repertoire. A lot of the way he moves cannot be replicated. So he does a lot of unique transitions and reversals there. There's a lot of psychology around the 619. Mm-hmm. And Will Ospreay doing his best to avoid that. Um, they build the 619 as sort of a death move. And, uh, yeah, just like the entire way they built around that, there's great, um, ways Rey Mysterio versus Will Ospreay, because Will Ospreay isn't used to being the bigger guy in a match. So the fact that he gets the base for Rey Mysterio yeah. definitely makes this a little bit different. Will Ospreay wins with the Oz Cutter. Um, I really enjoy this. And then there's a mo- an, an emotional post match, uh, with Osprey talking about how much for like a generation of kids like him, like early twenties, mid twenties, Rey Mysterio was the guy. Rey Mysterio was like someone that made Osprey want to wrestle or made um, people in that age want to wrestle. So that was a cool moment. Rey Mysterio talking about how uh, he's the heir to the throne and gives him a mask. It's, it's, cool, mm-hmm. it's cool stuff. Uh, yeah. So I enjoyed all of that aspects of it. And it was really nice to see Rey Mysterio have another match that I really enjoyed. And even in 2017 with uh, bad wheels and all and bigger <laughs> than he ever was. Rey Mysterio can still have some pretty fucking great matches. This was uh, this was certainly my favorite Will Ospreay match of the year. It's funny, though, for reasons that you brought up, it's sort of like the least impressive Will Ospreay match, though, mm-hmm. in that like he's not doing nearly nearly all of his usual array of dazzling moves because mostly he's basing for this guy. Um, and it's a side of Will that you don't get to see terribly often since he's mostly just uh, either the 
more of a high flyer of the two people in the match, or he's having like a high fly contest. Um, and it was cool. I will, say, I will say that I kind of disagree on that this year. Okay. That I think I'll get to that like on Osprey matches. I have higher. But right. I think Osprey this year in general really toned down a lot. That's compared. no, that's true. True. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um you're 68. Well, no, I was going to keep talking about this match. Oh, we can keep going. <laughs> so there was, uh, there's points at this towards the end where like Ray is like noticeably falling behind on spots. Um, sort of sloppy and, and you know that can detract from certain people's enjoyment but i kind of i liked how it played in the narrative here of mm-hmm. of this guy who's been wrestling longer than my parents have been married uh facing off against like this new hot young high flyer and not being able to keep up both in and out of kayfabe and i thought that was a really cool touch it, it certainly wasn't like intentional mm-hmm. but it's it adds to the experience and like i get why like initially people would think you know, for personal reasons of not liking Osprey, that saying he's like 1994, 1995, right? Sure. <laughs> like, would be like, oh my God, you're just gassing this Osprey guy. I'm like, no, like, you gotta really think about what, what Ray was doing at the time and blowing up uh, Mexico and how quickly word traveled about him. Yeah. How Osprey had the, had the same thing going on, especially some as, as young as they are. Yeah. So it really is playing with like this mirror match or student versus teacher or generational stuff that I eat up a lot of time in wrestling. So, uh, right. We can move on. What's your 68? My 68 was uh, a match that I've alluded to a couple of times, and I'm not sure it's going to show up on your list. It's Roman Reigns taking on Braun Strowman in an ambulance match from WWE's Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> Did not make my list, but the finish inadvertently is one of the <laughs> best and funniest things I've seen all year. We'll get to it. Uh, up until... A match that they had, I think it's the next match in this series. Up until the next match in the series, I thought this was like far and away the best match that these two had had. Um, I remember they- uncontrollably laughing at the finish. And it's not, <laughs> a, and it's not a bad thing. It's, it's just not. that the way it happened is so well really executed. fucking funny. It's, I mean, this is a match that like, it fixes a lot of the problems that I've had with previous matches. It's a little tighter. It's a little less hammy. Uh, it's better on selling, uh, due to the fact that they don't have to do a whole bunch of kickouts. Um, it's less like, overtly dramatic in the ways that annoy me um whole lot of brawling around the arena because they have to make their way up to the ambulance to you know uh win the match and there's a whole bunch of like fun environmental brawling that way uh and the finish that you've <laughs> mentioned a couple times sees roman for like the first time in the match actually gets some sustained offense in and he's trying to capitalize that and tries to hit a spear on the floor directly in front of the ambulance but Strowman for once, like shows some immense cleverness. He outsmarts instead, Roman Reigns. Yeah, he he flings open the door of the ambulance and dances aside, and Roman goes plunging headfirst into the ambulance. <laughs> he to lose. Into that it's ambulance. <laughs> it's so good, and the whole post match thing with Roman trying to kill Braun Strowman in the ambulance. It, it's a little it's a little much for me. A but little like, much. <laughs> But the actual um, execution. They actually have to pry open the ambulance. Yeah, they <laughs> and do. And Roman worked walked off. <laughs> but I mean, like like bell to bell, this was this was something that I really enjoyed, adored, adored. <laughs> and even if this batshit crazy company can't can't even do a post match segment right, I think in the ring they're they're doing pretty okay. 
the, yeah, I thought this match was really good too. Like, yeah. even if the, none of the matches made my list, I really enjoy pretty much every Roman Reigns Braun Strowman match. Mm-hmm. Um, my number sixty-seven, a match I think you liked, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Make your list is a uh, okay. Masaki Mochizuki versus Yamato from Dragon Gate Dangerous Gate. It didn't make my list, though. I really did enjoy it a lot. Yeah. Okay, so. Again, more context necessary because this is Dragon Gate and there's a lot of motion going on here. Yeah. Yamato's reign up to this point had been going on for a very, very, very long time. It was like, to this point, I think it was about 14 months. Yes. And people thought that he was going to lose at Kobe World. People thought he was going to lose at Final Gate in 2016. Uh huh. So there is a lot of stuff going on here. With Yamato's reign and the unrest a lot of the fan base had, at least the Western fans had with his title reign. Sure. Um, here comes Masaki Mochizuki, who, in an aforementioned match on my list against Big R, um, won a number one contendership for the Dreamgate title. And he does the same show as the Jimmy's and, and Reserved Give Me This Bambit match. Uh-huh. So after that hard, emotional, um, distressing the Jimmy's breakup after all these years, the Dreamgate match now has to go out there and try to get the crowd back. And with I, with the guy who has held the the Dreamgate match or the Dreamgate title for so long and people aren't into it. it like it was it was doomed to fail, this mm-hmm. match. And Masaki Mochizuki being 47, 48 years old at this point. Yeah. Um getting a Dreamgate shot annoyed a lot of people. Uh-huh. But this match works. It more than works. It's a great match. Yeah. I think Masaki Mochizuki in particular is awesome in it. What makes this match different, and I think what makes Mochizuki's title reign different so far is that these matches are shorter. These matches are going like 22 minutes. These matches are not that long. Yeah. And with like the time being cut shorter on a lot of these matches, there's not enough... There's not... um, We're getting... The um, boring stuff cut out, so to speak. That Dragon Gate is really bad at. It's funny you say that because, like, a good, like, 16, 17 minutes of this match is these two just wrestling around on the mat. Mm-hmm. And it's not like there's no mat wrestling here, but the way Mochizuki works on Yamato, he's yeah. trying to pick him apart. Yeah. There's an urgency in the way Mochizuki is working here. And Yamato is trying his damnest to keep on this belt. And I just love the way they work here. Um... I love the crowd when they start believing that Mochizuki could pull this off. They uh-huh. really get into it. When Yamato um, is putting him down with Galleria's, the crowd is biting hard on the fact that Yamato is pulling it off. And when, uh-huh. Mochizuki, when Mochizuki kicks out, they're ecstatic. Uh, and when Mochizuki just puts him away with one last big kick to the head, mm-hmm. the crowd loses their minds. And even before that, there's like. Uh, Mochizuki does one of his many, he's got like three or four different kick finishes mm-hmm. and he hits one of them, one of the bigger ones and it doesn't put Yamato away and the crowd's losing it. And, um, all the veterans of the company are in Mochizuki's corner, yeah. including Don Fuji and Don Fuji gets in the ring and like tries to fist fight the referee <laughs> for not counting fast enough on that. And it's, it's so like after 14 months of disappointing dull matches from the Dreamgate title. Like to see something that was that affecting was just awesome. And Motozuki puts him away with one last big kick to the head. The crowd goes nuts. Yeah. The veterans all swore Mochizuki. Um 
Mochizuki has been unitless for a while now. Uh-huh. So the fact that he even had this camaraderie and support, um, even if it was just from his um fellow first generation guys, it was yeah. really cool to see. Um Shima was crying in the post match, talking about um this this moment and how much it meant to see Mochizuki get it. And cause this like leading into the number one contenders match that precedes this, Mochizuki was like I'm almost 50. Like, this is my last shot. Like, if I don't win this match, I'm, I'm probably never challenging for this title again. Yeah. And keep in mind, like, he's also coming off a previous failure facing Shingo Takagi at Get It mm-hmm. 2015, which uh-huh. was a lot of people's match of the year that year. Yep. Um, but yeah, the emotion that Masaki Mochizuki is able to bring out the crowd at any given moment, whenever you need him to, is just what makes him so special. Like, so great. Even Shima can't really do what Mochizuki does. Yeah. Like when you put Mochizuki in a big spot, whether it's here against Yamato, whether it's back then against Shingo, whether it's during the title reign against Susumu Yokosuka or um, Ryo Saito, this guy just always delivers. He's one of the best wrestlers ever. And this is one of those performances that really just put like even less doubt in my mind when I talk about him. Totally, totally. My 67 is also a Dragon Gate match and something you brought up a little while ago. Though I don't know if it was you saying it was on your list. It's a Berserk ticking on over Generation plus Naruki Doi from uh, March the 8th. Yeah, this is on my list at 80. Okay, so uh, this is a, uh, to explain a little bit, this is a headhunting match, which means the winning team is able to pick a member of the losing team. Um, not necessarily the five guys in the ring, but the losing team's unit and have them switch over to their side, um, which doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense because usually these units are like kind of morally aligned and forcing people to change like that isn't always the cleanest switch, but uh, it's a big thing that happens in Dragon Gate and it makes for an emotional match here. And it's just a big Corican main event, multi-man tag uh, the thing that Dragon Gate does best, like telling stories, uh, telling complicated multi-layered history between like huge groups of people. Um, you get your T-Hawk and your Takahiro Yamamura interactions here. You get your El Lindaman and Eita interactions here after they had a, uh, Brave Gate defense that ended controversially a couple of days before this. You get Shingo and Shima facing off, like all sorts of animosity, all sorts of heat, all sorts of spots with maybe a Z on the end there instead of an S. And uh, it's a whole lot of fun. I really loved it. Uh, yeah, I really like the fact that um, this plays off the fact that uh, Takahiro Yamamura couldn't pick up the victory on the February 2nd mm-hmm. big um, tag match. And here he's he's the one picking up the fall, um, pinning Push Tamanaga. Uh, so I really enjoyed that match. Uh, one of a few Dragon Gate big multi-man tag matches this year to just really deliver. And yeah, they actually kicked like th- this came in the midst of a multi-month, like really like a half a year downturn mm-hmm. that the promotion had. And this was one of the few times that they really knocked it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Um, my number 66 is virus versus prayer from Lucha Nemes. This one was a uh, really highly touted Lucha tag match with a guy that I love in virus. Um, and it was one that I made sure to go out of my way to watch and I liked it, but I didn't really buy into the hype. So why don't you hype it up for me? Um, I think it's Vera's going out there with a guy that I had never heard of or seen. Never ever. <laughs> and having, uh, 
excellent exhibition of mat wrestling and technical prowess. And one that I had been dearly missing from viewers uh-huh. in the last like year or so. So it's the last one that really hit me on that level. Even though like his Ray Echisera match was pretty good from 2016. Yeah. Um, the Liger match that I know you liked a lot from uh, Fantastic Mania last year was really fun too. He's had stuff in between, but since like Dr. Cerebro or something, like he hasn't had a match that like really caught my eye. Yeah, it's been a long this, time. And this is the one where I'm like, man, like, Virus, whenever he wants to, still has it. And prayer is just as good with them. Um, trading these intricate, fancy, oftentimes convoluted holds, but it works because these guys just do it so smoothly. And I think they sell pretty decently, which is weird for a Lucha Maestro match. Sure. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed every aspect of this. And it was really cool to see Virus, um, have a match that I tout this highly after a couple years of somewhat being off the map. And as I uh-huh. say that he wasn't having good matches in between then, it's just that he hasn't had anything as good in the last couple of years. So it's really stuck out to me seeing one of my favorite wrestlers like have sort of a return to form match. And, and he did it against someone we'd never heard of. Yeah. So the fact that he just went out there with a random dude and was like, I love this fucking awesome match. And, <laughs> um, you know, it was just really cool for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, my number 66 is a match I alluded to earlier. It's Oni Lurkin taking on Andrade Cien Almas in NXT from February. I know these two have had a lot of matches, so I don't know which one this is. This is uh, the blow-off to their feud that uh, bled from 2016 into 2017. Okay, I didn't. I don't think I saw this because I was. This one's not NXT TV lately. Sure, this one was not in Full Sail, mm-hmm. notably. Uh, this was that? in. This was at the venue. What a weird name for a place Wait, at UCF. That's where it's called the venue at UCF. Yeah, it's it's some place at the UCF campus in Orlando. Okay. Um, but as I mentioned, this is a great blow off to uh, a little feud these two had throughout the winter. Um, notably, it's the longest match. That only Lorcan had in 2017. This is like 11 minutes, and the next longest he has after this is like eight or so. Uh, they make good use of that time. These two just teeing off on each other. Both of them got heavy hands, and they put them to good use here. Um, even in like the third match in the series, uh, series Almas is like trying to be tranquilo, and it does not work out for him. <laughs> and very quickly, he's like, "Okay, well, I, I, I guess I gotta lay into this guy." And it makes for just an awesome match in which these guys are just going at it tooth and nail, um, real mean, real fiery. Uh, if anybody like was wondering where Andrade Almas came from with this whole like. It's sort of like an NXT title reign out of the blue, I think. I think this is a good match to like try to understand the reason why that, that guy has found some success as of late. Yeah, I would definitely say that the um, Almas Lorcan stuff is what gave people much more confidence in Almas again. Yeah. Even then, even then, I thought he was still having good matches before this. Sure. As I wasn't exactly sure why this bad perception of him started in the first place, but it was cool to see him. Uh, have this thing that kind of reheated him mm-hmm. and gave, totally. gave him a lot more life. Um, number 65 is a match I know you have higher, but Massive Product versus Rencon from the WXW Tag League Finals. Yeah, we'll talk about this one on the next episode. Uh, and my next match is one that 
I mentioned briefly earlier, it's Hiromu Kushida, Hiromu Kushida, Hiromu Takahashi taking on Kushida at the Dominion show. All right. Um, I was actually kind of thinking that you might have the Sakura Genesis match on here, which was um like the short little two minute match. I do. Oh, you do. All right. Yeah. It's higher than this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, let's talk about Dominion. <laughs> I like my short matches, Quentin. Uh, so this was the end of tril. This was the end of the trilogy. Uh, three real wild matches that showed um, more growth than you would imagine, and more like interesting changing strategies, slightly changing strategies, only like tweaking things as opposed to rewriting the whole game plan. Um, and this one saw Kishida like learning from his previous mistakes, especially learning from the 90 second embarrassment that he suffered at Sumo Hall, uh, learning from previous matches that. Uh, Hiromu has had recently with old rivals of his, especially the Dragon Lee match from the first night of the best of the Super Juniors. Um, and if in it, like, more so than this being a good Hiromu match, even though it is, this is like a great Kushida performance. Yes, like, really, like, Kushida is phenomenal when he brings out this, okay, you've been fucking with me for months. I'm tired of it. <laughs> like, he did it with Bushi in 2016. Uh-huh. in a very great match where people were booing the hell out of him. But when Kushida gets that change in his gear and he works in a different, like literally changing his gear because when he like is facing guys at like the blow off, yeah. he wears darker gear. And Bo- yeah. when he faced Bushi, he was wearing black. He's facing some um, chrome metallic um, looking trunks. And here he is just vicious. The front, like out the gate, they're like, uh-huh. I think I said this when I was um um d- reviewing the show from on this week in wrestling with Tim and Pete that this was more of a never a title match than it was a junior title match. Totally, yeah, I can see that. But yeah, I can go back in. It's uh, like it was just it was the sort of thing that made me come to understand why I think so highly of Kushida and why he is like the ace of the junior division. Um, and it just he, it was really cool to see him like finally put the pieces together and figure out Hiromu Takahashi after months of just being like baffled by him and being humiliated by him. All right, so my number sixty four is Kenny Omega versus Michael Elgin from the G One Climax. Hi. Uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna say no. Michael Elgin match made my list because we're gonna talk about one here in a couple minutes, but. Uh, Suffice to say, these are two boys I don't like much. So uh, you're gonna have to take especially together, probably. Especially not together. Nope. (laughs) All right. So, like I mentioned with Ishii, look, this is two very great offensive wrestlers going out there throwing bombs. Michael Logan, being the big strong guy that he is, um, is able to catch and throw Kenny Omega, who bumps and sells like a maniac for him. Kenny Omega, who has decept- who is deceptively strong, has great power offense, too, um, showing off a little bit and doing some power spots to Elgin, um, um, like this Dr. Bomb and whatever else. Uh-huh. Um, look, it's a lot of bomb throwing, a lot of offense, a lot of uh, big, high-impact moves, um, a lot of Michael Elgin catching Kenny Omega and power bombing the shit out of him, yep. lots of V-triggers. But I think what, makes, what separates this match from me compared to their match at Long Beach is uh, I think what makes it better is Michael Elgin finally has a burning hammer, and they've been building to it in New Japan for a while. He yeah. had never hit it, um, other than like the build to the Naito match. He had never hit the burning hammer, and this was 
finally his first time hitting it, and this is what he used to beat Kenny Omega. Now, if Kenny Omega had kicked out of the Burning Hammer, <laughs> this match would not be on my list. Sure. But since the, it had been built up for months and teased that Kenny, that Michael Elgin was trying to hit this move but just couldn't, and he finally hits it to put away this guy that's probably his biggest rival in the company, I thought yeah. it was a very good use of the move and added to a really high high paced action packed match. I can I can see that I understand that. All right, so um, what's your sixty four? My sixty four is a uh, another match in a storied rivalry that I think people overlook sometimes. It's Matt Riddle taking on Timothy Thatcher in Rev Pro's Live at the Cockpit 14. Yeah, I thought Riddle and Thatcher had a couple really strong matches this year, better than anything they had in 2016. Uh-huh. Um, most notably because Riddle is very good at Matt wrestling, and you know what? Timothy Thatcher's pretty good at it, too. And that's all that they do here for 11 minutes. They just grapple around. It's not the sort of, like, spotty nonsense that I see a lot from Matt Riddle, the stuff that annoys me the most. Um, it's It's just these two... Uh, fucking around on the mat for the most of the match, Matt Riddle's in control. Um, you know, former UFC fighter, like pretty well decorated in, in the company for a short time there. Um, takes control of Timothy Thatcher, gives us, gives us an opportunity to see a lot of great Thatcher selling and a lot of Thatcher working from behind. Thatcher doesn't get a whole lot of offense in until late in the match where he's able to slap on a sleeper hold. Um, like a really, a really sick sleeper hold, like a really tight one. Um, the sort of thing that like if I saw it on anybody else, I would be mad that they didn't tap out to it. But, um, in the same way that I brought up the idea of his selling on our last episode, I kind of enjoyed Matt Riddle doing everything he could to get out of this move here, like this incredibly vice like sleeper hold. Because it sold me on the idea of Matt Riddle as this superhuman person, as someone who can survive like um, the all the air being driven away from his body. Uh, and he's kicking around and like elbowing out and trying to trying to slip free of this move, and eventually he does. And as soon as he does, he's right back on the offensive. He tries to slap on the bro mission, it doesn't work, and so in, <laughs> and so instead he grabs. Tim's knee and ankle and bends them backwards <laughs> in a horrifying fashion. And I scream out loud and Timothy Thatcher taps out and it's awesome. Like a great finish to this match. If this match was like 22 minutes instead of 11, it would be in my top 10. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it is a great match that just doesn't like for once it doesn't build into more when usually I'm like, Oh, I wish, I wish they cut 10 minutes off of this. All right, so my number 63, another match you haven't seen, but Kento Miyahara versus Kai from All Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so. Not, not a big Kai fan. Let me get that out of the way. Uh, I do think Kai is unfairly mal- maligned, but um, this that match might be w- true. Um, this match is Kento Miyahara being a complete asshole. And uh-huh. working over Kai's leg throughout the entire match, and Kai sells it brilliantly. He is hobbling around, can barely stand, and it is just fantastic stuff. Um, I really enjoy Kento Miyahara's leg work here. I think it's a departure from the typical Kento Miyahara formula, obviously. It's a performance from Kai that, uh, yeah, it's maybe the, maybe the best match he's had since like the Kenny Omega stuff. He is, uh, he's fantastic here. Um, 
other than that, like he had a fantastic Candy's Carnival too, but this match was really the standout for me. Um, yeah, I just love his selling here. Uh, down the stretch, there's um, a struggle for Kento Miyahara to hit that package um, with a straight arm German suplex. I forgot what Kento Miyahara calls it, but uh, it's I forget what it is. Yeah, yeah, but Kento Miyahara is struggling, and Kai is fighting so hard to not get hit with this suplex. And I really enjoy that aspect of it, where he's not just, like, hitting it out of nowhere. There's a real struggle and build to the fact that Kai knows that if he gets hit with this, he's absolutely done for. Um, and that was the end of the match, but brilliant selling from Kai. Awesome limb targeting from Kento Miyahara, which is something he doesn't get to do that often. Uh-huh. And I thought in the middle of a tournament, this was something really awesome to see. Okay. Uh, my, what number are we on? 63. My 63 is another tournament match. Uh, it's Yuji Nagata taking on Kota Ibushi in the G1 Climax. All right. I I really like this match. I think I gave it four stars, so let's talk about it. So, um, uh, I'm a big Nagata guy. He was a big deal when I first broke into New Japan. Um, and even at that point, 10 years ago, he was already sort of an older dude. And I, and, I, and I just have like an affinity for older dudes in wrestling, especially when they're so often struggling against the younger crop of people trying to take their spot. Um, moreover than that, though, I like New Japan. Like, not so much the last couple of years, sure, but like historically, I'm a big New Japan guy. And Nagata is someone who has always bled New Japan and has always protected his company even to uh, even to bad ends for him in shoot fights against uh Mirko Krokop. Um but he's a guy who's like seen all sorts of invasions and seen all sorts of like new hot shits come and go in the company and he's a guy who's always stood fast by the promotion. Uh and that's what he's doing here against Kota Ibushi, who's certainly not um not a newcomer to New Japan, but is still like a young guy who's not fully in the company. And Nagata's like, no, fuck you. You're younger than me. You're not a New Japan guy. I'm going to take it to you. And he does it with a game plan that uh, Ibushi doesn't really have an answer for in some map-based wrestling. It doesn't work nearly so well because Nagata is getting older. This is his last G1 Climax. And uh, he shows lots of signs of his age throughout the tournament. And eventually Ibushi just uh, starts blasting his way free with a bunch of strikes that Nagata maybe two or three years ago could have stood up to, but at this point he just doesn't have it in him. And, uh, Abushi takes control of the match, hits his last ride power bomb, a real, real wonky looking one. Cause Nagata's like a old and B is a kind of a big guy himself. So when he brings him down, he brings him down with authority and it looks like that's going to be it. But Nagata's, you know, this is his last tournament, and he's like, no, fuck you. I'm going to give it my all. And he kicks out of it in one of, I think, the best false finishes of the year. And it's an efficient one, too, because Ibushi has been building up this new finish the whole time, the Kamagoye that we brought up earlier. And instead of it just being a needless kickout, it segues right into using that once again. And it, it gives him the victory, and it's. I just thought it was a great little finish of an already interesting match. Um, this is only no. Yeah, I want to ask you if it was only Eugene Nagata match you have on your list, but I know we both have one higher. Uh huh. All right. So I'll get Eugene Nagata um, um, thoughts off then when we get to that match. Um, out of curiosity, is that going to be next part or part after? Uh, that'll be part four. Yeah. All right. Um, my number sixty-two. Almost during the end of this episode here. Uh-huh. Uh huh. 
you said this on the last part, but Corey Hollins versus John Schuyler from PWX mm. Unsanctioned. This was my number 100. Okay. So, the Corey Hollins-John Schuyler feud had been building and brewing for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, they were still teaming um, as um, the Bruiserweights for a while. Up until, like, March of the year, I think. Mm-hmm. And they had some friction um, caused by the fact that John Schuyler lost the PWX title to Jake Manning and um, took some time off. And when John Schuyler came back, Corey Hollis was still um, being a dick, still kind of uh, didn't know how to react to the fact that John Schuyler had been gone for so long. Uh-huh. And there was some heated ten- there's some heated interaction between them, some really strong tension. Um, there's one segment on a PWX show where, like, John Schuyler gets up in his face and talks about Corey Hollis's mother mm. and something like that. And they wind up hugging it out in the middle of the ring. But um, what happens is they have a tag title match against the Ugly Ducklings at, Ri- at Rise of a Champion. That's a really good match, too. One of the better mm-hmm. tag it matches is. On, on the U.S. Indies. Um, I mean, like, we're, we usually have to speak highly of the Ugly Ducklings or else they'll come at us on Twitter. But it really <laughs> was a good match. <laughs> and that match, um, them losing... Resulted in Corey Hollis finally turning on John Schuyler in a pretty brutal um, post-match beatdown. Uh-huh. And after that, they um taking shots to each other in promos, building to this match, not really having any interactions other than Corey Hollis being on commentary for Schuyler matches. Um, Great stuff, too. Just, like, really good non-physical interaction. Mm-hmm. And it all led to this unsanctioned fight between these two former tag team partners that was unsanctioned because PWX wanted nothing to do with the repercussions of this. Uh-huh. And uh, this is a blue jeans, knee pads, <laughs> over jeans. Cowboy boots. Cowboy boots, white tank top fight. Yep. And sometimes I'm not really a big fan of it, but I think for this feud... I think for the hate, I Uh think for the way they built it, I think for the heat, I think for this promotion in particular, they really delivered what an unsanctioned fight is. They went all over the building. They were using weapons. Yes, it's sort of a plunder brawl. You could argue that some stuff was maybe too comical for something that is so violent. Sure. But I thought this worked perfectly. I thought there was some really tremendous drama um, down the stretch. Uh Gunnar Millen, I forgot what the other guy's name is. Oh, yeah, I forget, Come, too. Coming Some out, coming out at the end um, to help Corey Hollis and kind of making his own um, version of um, the former, um, what were they called, Country Jacked unit that they were both that they, that they both used to be a part of. And uh, I like the fact that they took the padding off of the ring. Mm, yeah, brutal. Yeah, took the padding off of the ring and um, the Triple H tribute stuff does have my does that like does wear Brock thin, but I do think in this match in particular, it was used in a way that worked because they split off yeah. due to the fact that where are they now? They didn't sign these WWE contracts. They're supposed to. They appeared on NXT and Raw so many times, using uh-huh. extras, and you thought that they were on their way to these contracts that never happened. And both of these guys just didn't know how to take it. They yeah. just reacted to it poorly on both ends. And Corey Hollis just still feeling as bitter as he was. Um, there's a pedigree on the exposed wood. And 
I think that's like the best use of it I've seen. Totally. From anybody. This is kind of like British Strong style, uh, Chris Hero, these two. Like, it was the best use of a pedigree that I've seen on the indie scene. And I thought it was a fantastic end to that match. John Skyler was a fantastic babyface, I thought. Mm-hmm. John Skyler had a really good 2017, I thought. I really wish I could have squeezed him onto my wrestlers of the year list. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love this match. Uh, can't rave enough about it. Uh, a tremendous feud ender. I have a, another feud ender. That's like not totally dissimilar from this higher on my list, but okay. this is one that I really, really enjoyed. Yeah. My, like my problems with it weren't so much that like the whole pedigree triple H wankery shit. Um, although some, some of my complaints were related to Corey Hollis, someone who I like a lot, someone who I like as a heel a lot, but don't necessarily buy is this sort of like a blood feud dude um, relates to that problem to our, uh, just the production foibles with this whole thing um first and foremost being trevin adams and i believe his name is frankie gastineau on commentary uh both of them fine totally acceptable commentators uh but not the sort of people that you want to hear talking over a blood feud like this uh and they didn't do a whole lot of favors nor did the fact that this comes from a large it's not a high school gym but it's like a large rec facility sort of place a place with high ceilings Uh, a lot of the sound goes up in the air you don't hear much of the crowd especially when they're outside of the ring um and so when most of the sound you hear from the match comes from uh frankie gastineau and trevin adams it's it's sort of a downer for what is otherwise a really great blood feud ender um i will echo your sentiments that john schuyler is fantastic in this like so fire not fiery in not fiery in a sense that he's like um all that jazzed to be here, but he's got an anger brewing. He's got fire underneath the surface. Like in, and he's trying to get all this anger out that has been stuck underneath of him for so long. So many snappy little punches, so many snappy little bumps, incredible, like blood loss selling, like just a good blade job in general. Um, whole bunch of brutality in this match. Like a, it was like a baseball slide into a ladder that made me like yelp out loud. Uh, there is a dive off the corner post through a table that might be the best spot I saw this year. Um, so much good stuff in this match, but kind of like it doesn't stick to landing due to like where it is, sadly. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, what's your 62? <laughs> My 62 is a uh, is a well-built-up match that you and I have been talking about for a long time. <laughs> um, and I think you might be surprised that it's actually this low. Uh, it's Sammy Callahan taking on Michael Elgin in AEW's Killers Among Us. <laughs> okay. I'm actually surprised that it was this. I was definitely expecting maybe um, part three or part four. I, I, I did think that it was going to be a little bit higher, but but once I actually caught up with a whole bunch of stuff, it was like I couldn't justify it that high. <laughs> All right. So um, I tried watching this match. You tried. I attempted twice, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. At my behest. Sammy Callahan, I like. Michael Elgin, I also like. But these two together in a long title match in AEW, where I did not particularly like Sammy Callahan (laughs) or Michael Elgin, was not very appealing to me, and I gave up about five minutes in. I hear you. Like, on paper, this reads like something I I couldn't handle. Like, it's Simi Callahan, someone who I enjoy in the ring, but who I find to be 
com- completely unappealing as a character, completely un- unappealing as a real life person, completely unappealing as a professional behind the scenes, especially in some place like AEW. Um, don't like Michael Elgin. Uh, I didn't like him for a very long time. And then he sort of turned my opinion around once he joined New Japan. Uh, but the bloom has come off the rose there. And especially recently, some news has come out that has made me not enjoy Michael Elgin outside of the ring. And watching these two go at it in a long, overly dramatic, like well built up, like the, the fucking hype package before this is god awful. <laughs> go ahead. I was gonna say, I, I kind of thought, like, for AAW, that they did a pretty decent job with it. Sure. But, like, in general, for a high package, you know, it's not that good. But, but it's, it's like, it, like it was predicated on, like, a fake, uh, presser that these two did, like a sit down interview across the table, and it was so goofy. And, and this match is dramatic in all the wrong ways. Um, it's an AAW with a fan base and with a booker and with commentators who I just despise. Like, it's, this match, like, you should not like this match. I should hate this match, but I don't. Like, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe it's the idea that I, I've enjoyed, I've, in a perverse sort of way, I've enjoyed Sammy Callahan as this, like, self-important mousetrap of a champion who books himself in these good positions and has a squad of goons to back him up anytime he's in trouble. Maybe I like the idea of him coming to realize that he has to like nut up or shut up and face off against this guy who is a huge fan of a style that I'm also a huge fan of, but makes it the most like dull, derivative, like unappealing thing that I've ever seen. Um, but who at the same time is very much like, <laughs> it's funny to say this after the fact, but someone who is like a paragon of virtue, someone who like in the ring is, is at least like, sort of a a do-gooder and watching Callahan try to struggle against that person in as close to like a legitimate contest as he can get. I thought that was really interesting. Um, in the end, Callahan's getting gunned down. Like there's no way he can avoid it. He's, he's going to lose to Michael Elgin. Um, his manager who I'm forgetting the name of and Jake Christ come out to try to make the save and he stops them and tells Elgin to put the bullet in the gun and to fire. And Elgin responds with a really gross back fist and then goes for his big Elgin bomb. And I guess as he's sort of like unconscious, like maybe it's not, uh, maybe it wasn't something he did intentionally, but Callahan reverses it into a roll up and gets the three count. And it's like, I don't know, maybe like a year plus after this reign of just garbage and shenanigans from this guy, maybe seeing him double down and actually try to win a match by legitimate means and finding that he can do it was really cool to me. I think that's just all it was. Yeah, and I think the fact that this match succeeded when, with all these factors against it. So many factors. You (laughs) You should despise this match. Yeah, this was like the most surprising match I saw in 2017. Yeah, and like for, for that, and yeah, for that alone, like I think it's I think it's worthy of watching, and I I totally get if you can't make it through it because there's so much working against it, but I mean it 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 did its number on me. All right, so we're at the finale of this part of the show. All right, um, but number sixty one, something I'm glad wound up where it was when we started uh when I decided to come up with the 120. Uh-huh. I just like so happened to be right there. 
My number 61 is Will Osprey versus Jimmy Havoc from Progress Chapter 41, Unboxing. Oh, okay. So this is from 2016. Didn't air until 2017. Uh, I didn't get get to uh, see this match. Okay. So this will go back to 2016, so bear with me a little bit. Sure. But in 2016, Will Ospreay did not win a single match in progress. It was a good year. (laughs) Um, He lost to Marty Skrull. Mm-hmm. Lost a thunder, lost a thunder bastard. Um, took some time off to go work in New Japan. Mm-hmm. Lost to Mark Haskins. Lost to uh, Shane Strickland. Shane Strickland lost to Adam Cole. Lost in every Adam single. Cole. When the fuck did he face Adam Cole? Chapter thirty nine. The show before this. That was Weird. a really good match too. All right. Um, but in that time, since Osprey had been uh in Japan, and since he's on this losing streak, Jimmy Havoc had returned. And Jimmy Havoc, if you know anything about the history of these two, uh-huh. legitimately has tried to murder Will Ospreay multiple times. Sure. Um, tried to cut off his ear. Tried yeah. to give, like, he stomped his head while he was biting a rope in a curb stomp fashion. Uh-huh. Had an axe. Was about to cut his head off. A lot of stuff. And Will Ospreay all did it in defending the name of progress. Yeah. And, and like, say what you will about like the, the dramatization of that sort of shit. But like, there's a lot of history between these two and that's what leads us here. And the culmination of Jimmy Havoc coming back and getting this hero's welcome and people uh-huh. acting like everything didn't happen, that Jimmy Havoc suddenly repented for all of his sins. And Will Ospreay has been here busting his ass, having matches and just couldn't get it done. So on this surprise show where no one knew the card, Will Ospreay and Jimmy Havoc faced off for the first time in two years. Mm-hmm. And it's a story told by Will Ospreay and his facial expressions. Will Ospreay is, God, I don't even, he's angry, he's incensed, he's befuddled, he's confused, he's hurt at the fact that Jimmy Havoc is even here. Mm. He's so at a loss for words that people are cheering for Jimmy Havoc instead of him. This man yeah. that has tried to take down the company, this man that has tortured and tormented Will Ospreay for such a long time, did horrible, heinous shit to Mark Andrews, to Jim Smallman, got in fans' faces, spit on fans, flipped them off, called them cuz, did everything possible. And yet here we are in 2016, end of the year, and Jimmy Havoc is... They're worshiping the ground he walks on. Mm. And Will Ospreay is fucking livid. And he works this match with a passion and an anger that you will not see in any other Will Ospreay match because this is where it fits the most. Mm. He, like, this is just where all of his bottled up rage of losing time in and time out every single time in 2016 just boils over. And sometimes, sometimes he takes cheap shots, but he's not a full heel during the match. The only thing you know is that Jimmy Havoc is who the crowd wants to win. And Will Ospreay tries his hardest. There's callbacks to their previous matches. Um, they acknowledge the fact that Will Ospreay was always able to kick out of more than one um, acid rainmaker. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy Havoc knows this and doesn't fuck around and doesn't try to cover him immediately after the first one. Uh, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here. There's a longtime progress fan. means a lot to me. Sure. But it's just... It's the best Will Ospreay performance ever. It is the best Will Ospreay performance because it is a story told that you can understand and resonate 
just through his face. And despite all the real life shit that you ever, that, you ever, that you can have with him, despite how you feel about him in the ring, despite everything, you can look at his face during this match and know the story and understand where all of this comes from. Understand okay. that this is all deserved. And it is a very neat way to switch the tables from Jimmy Havoc, the dastardly evil tyrant of progress and Will Ospreay, the heroic savior to Will Ospreay being vengeful and Jimmy Havoc just being Jimmy Havoc. (laughs) Is this this the last time these two appear on your list? No, I have the the, um, chapter 46 match higher, but I I did need to have this on here just for the fact that I think Will Ospreay turns in an incredible performance here. And I have to see that. I can't. It stinks that I I just didn't watch very much progress at all in 2016. Oh yeah, I don't blame you. Um, but yeah, um, a 2016 match that made my life because it was 2017. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's important to me as a longtime progress fan to just see that feud get reignited, and I actually really liked what they did with it in 2017 mm. and how they moved on with it. But uh, that's it there. All right, and my uh, 61 to close us out for this episode is Eric Royal taking on Snooty Fox in a brass knuckles on a pole match from CWF Mid-Atlantic. All right, I did not get a chance to see this. Okay, first and foremost, uh, you need to know that this is in Chapel Hill, which is Snooty Fox's hometown, where he is beloved. He's a guy who's only about two years into the business, sort of rough around the edges, an older dude who's getting into wrestling late. Um, but he, he's like a local hero in Chapel Town, like a, a small college town where people know each other and, and he's a big deal, big local celebrity. And he's facing off against Eric Royal, who is, <laughs> Not my pick for heel of the year, but God damn it, it's close. And he is putting in an all-timer performance here, like constantly berating Snooty, constantly calling him stupid, constantly humiliating him, um, fucking with the fans. Like at one point he throws Snooty, who's a big guy, like 6'3". Like he's... So here I was trying to explain that Snooty Fox is quite a large man, uh, a large person to be thrown onto a non-wrestler, especially. And Eric Royal takes him and throws him onto a woman seated in the front row here. And for the rest of the night, this woman stares daggers at Eric Royal. Uh, towards the end of the match, after Royal picks up the win by dubious means, fans are legitimately throwing trash at him. Uh, it's... It's like an incredible performance from this heel. Like this, this really, this really enjoy. Okay, let me put it this way. So my favorite spot in this match is Royal doing a seated senton, a running seated senton off the apron to Snooty as he's standing on the floor. And when Royal lands with the move, he pops a goddamn rap squat, like poses like he's on a, like he's on a Young Money Records album cover, and it makes me laugh so much and. It's hard to say that that's effective heel work because you and I are here talking about it on, on a podcast and we're not like, like it's, it's hard to say it's effective heel work because we don't hate Eric Royal. But watching this match, you wouldn't know that. Watching this match, he gets getting booed relentlessly. These people are out. So here I was describing how the crowd is out for Eric Royal's blood, uh, just constantly booing him, constantly screaming at him, eventually just throwing trash at him, and they're getting so invested in Snooty Fox's comebacks. I can't say that this is not effective work because, because the paying audience in attendance are so into this match. 
And it's, and it's great to watch this hometown guy like beat and batter Eric Royal all around the building outside into the streets of Chapel Hill. There's a point where they're outside in a basketball court and Snooty checks a ball into Eric Royal's face and the crowd goes nuts. And it's, it's all sorts of fun stuff. Eventually they, uh, eventually Snooty retrieves the brass knuckles, but Eric Royal has had an extra pair slipped to him by the devious coach Gemini. And he's able to clock Snooty with him first. And he picks up the win that way. And, People are so pissed off about it, but it's it's great pro wrestling. Um, out of curiosity, you do have another Sunni, Sunni Fox match higher, right? And I do have uh, another Eric Royal match higher, yeah. Um, Musnudi, I uh, just have this block watching him, kind of like the origin of his character. I still haven't gotten over. If you remember, he was... I'm, I See, I don't remember. I came in... I've only started watching CWF regularly this year, so I haven't seen that. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so the origin of the Sunni Fox character is that initially he was a security guard on okay. the screen. And then after um, 105 minutes, he then um, transitioned, transitioned into being a wrestler. And okay. I think for me, the transition from security guard to wrestler went a little too fast. So I think I still have some kind of mental block with Snooty, even though I acknowledge that he is very, very good and excelling and like, like excelling at like a really rapid rate. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I really want to like him, but I still just wish I could would have got a little bit more time to like build with him when he just started like jumping into his wrestling. How fast is this transition? And like, how is it? How do they do it? Um, God, I don't remember the specifics of it, but I just remember watching worldwide. And it's not like they just were giving him big matches right away, but it was kind of like he yeah, was like being presented like way stronger than I would initially think. And I get it. He's a big that. dude and he's yeah. one of the bigger guys in CWF. But I thought his struggle to become one of the bigger guys or best guys in the company, um, didn't really, um, match up with, um, his experience to level what they were going with with him. As I understand, his first match was against Otto Schwantz in Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and Otto Schwantz, a veteran of CWF, someone who did in his day mean a whole lot to the company, but these days it's just been, you know, a veteran puddling around having great matches, but not necessarily anyone of importance. But I, I guess I understand where you're coming from, having not seen it live, like just going from oh, this guy is is just someone who's around to, oh, now I suddenly have to think of this person as an important wrestler. Yeah. So it's taken me a while to get over it, and I'm like sort of getting there now. But, um, yeah, I think we'll like talk about that when we get to the Royal Welcomes match. Okay. All right. So uh, that caps off this part. Uh, I felt like that went shorter, but I'm probably... I think it did, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, a little, maybe 10, 15 minutes shorter. But, uh... Uh, two parts down. Are you okay? God. <laughs> <laughs> At least we didn't have a big argument about Jordan Devlin on this one. <laughs> I, was, I, I was actually thinking you had saw that Jim, um, Jimmy Havoc will last right back, so I was expecting more there. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, that is a match that I, I've had a lot of thoughts about that I just weren't able to get out. Mm. And But there will be more from, on that when we get to their uh, Chapter 46 match. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you for listening to part two of this never-ending saga of the 120 best matches of 2017. Halfway there. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. See you on the part two.